This is the Manga Mavericks Podcast from AllComic.com, episode 48. We are a podcast not only dedicated to talking about manga as a medium, but as an industry. I'm Colton. And I am Sid. And whoa, 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 change the new world. <laughs> we are going to change the world. Well, not really, but we're going to talk about a manga that means the world to a lot of us. And that manga is World Trigger by Daisuke Ashihara. And we've got some great guests on the show joining us for that session, including... Annalisa Chrisman, who letters World Trigger for Weekly Shonen Jump and Viz Media, and Wensley Dale Cheddar from Stammer Scream, our rival Shonen Jump review podcast, and someone who has also done the voice of Osamu in Team ODAR's World Trigger Abridged series. I'm very excited that we'll be able to have those two on the show to talk about Daisuke Arashinara's World Trigger. I'm really looking forward to it, but first, we got some news to cover. Yeah, so get ready for a four and a half hour long podcast, <laughs> probably five hours. Oh yeah, uh, we definitely got a lot of Q&As to talk about too, so... <laughs> Oh, this is this is gonna this is gonna be my entire week. Okay, so <laughs> I'm looking forward to it. It'll it'll be fun. Um, so I guess well, let's just get right into the news then. Uh, we have our um, usual monthly book scan list for April. We did not have a list last episode, but now we do. Yay. I guess we can just kind of start from the top because uh, My Year Academia Volume Twelve ranked at number one, which um, I think is. Probably no surprise at this point. It's very cool. Um, I think My Hero Academia deserves it. It's obviously been gaining a lot of popularity, I'm sure. I think last time I checked, My Hero Academia is like the most popular thing on Crunchyroll, uh, according to its popular tab on on its website. It so. usually is when uh, when the new season is airing. Okay, I actually didn't know that, so that was that was surprising to me at least. Um, and I guess along with Volume Twelve, we also have Volumes uh, One and Eleven um, on the list as well. Uh, volume One ranking at number eleven, and Volume Eleven ranking at number thirteen. Mm-hmm. So let's see, going further down the list, uh, we have Tokyo Ghoul Re Volume Four ranked at number four, um, along with Tokyo Ghoul Re Volume Three ranked at number fifteen. Uh, volume 1 of Re ranked at number 19, and then we have the first volume of the original Tokyo Ghoul ranked at number 20. So much Tokyo Ghoul. Yeah, that's, what is that, like four volumes of Tokyo Ghoul? Yeah, I mean, I don't think that's actually any more than usual, but <laughs> yeah, it just goes to show you, even uh, shoddy anime adaptions can't kill the Tokyo Ghoul buzz. I guess not, and... Yeah, <laughs> I don't even want to talk about the anime, and I've never even seen it, and I'm and I'm already like exhausted. Um, so, <laughs> so um, at number six we have Attack on Titan Volume Twenty Four, as well at uh, let's see, we also have Akira Himikawa's The Legend of Zelda Twilight Princess Volume Three at number eight, and then let's see here what else we have: Card Captor Sakura Clear Card Volume Three at number sixteen. And One Punch Man Volume 13 and number 18. So, yeah, I, I think this is um, it's not not a super surprising list. Again, a lot of the usual suspects, but I guess I I, I don't know why I'm surprised that, that that there's so much Tokyo Ghoul on here. I like I know Tokyo Ghoul's popular, but I don't remember that that much Tokyo Ghoul usually being on the list. But I I guess there is. But yeah, Tokyo Ghoul and My Hero Academia seem to be pro- probably the most popular 
most best-selling titles, I guess, as far as, like, Viz goes. That's definitely true. Oh, also worth noting is that Wiz's release of Homestuck also ranked number 17. So that's not technically a manga, but it is distributed by Wiz. So they have, like, a lot of representation in the top 20 this month. Mm, yeah, they, they have a lot of stuff. I honestly didn't even know Homestuck was still a thing. <laughs> I mean, it ended, but they're putting it out in graphic novels now. Mm. But yeah, that's that's about it for the book scan list. Good list. I yeah, liked it. I really think uh, there's a lot of good titles on here. I mean, the same old titles, but I always like uh, seeing how they rank and fare up. And I just want to say I love the volume 12 cover for My Hero Academia. It's pretty great. That's probably one of my favorite covers, actually. Yeah. But now let's talk about another list, a list that shows a different side of the story. Let's talk about the top 50 uh, diamond list. And we're not going to go over all 50, but basically where the book scan list tracks like, you know, general retailers and stuff like the diamond charts are specifically for comic book shops. So this chart tracks what's selling at comic book specialty shops. So let's just go over, let's say the top 10 here and see how it fares up to the book scan list. At number one, we've got My Hero Academia volume 12. So we've got like a direct correlation there. And then we've got Attack on Titan volume 24 at number two. We've got Tokyo Ghoul Re, Volume 4 at number 3. We've got Assassination Classroom, Volume 21 at number 4. Uh, My Hero Volume 1 is at number 5. We've got Battle Angel Eater Morris Chronicle at Volume 2 at number 6. We have Dead Dead Demons Did It Destruction, Volume 1 at number 7. Worlds and Harem, Volume 1 at number 8. Uh, Battle Angel Eater The Deluxe Edition, Volumes 3 at 9. And we have Legend of Zelda, Twilight Princess, Volume 1 at 10. So a lot more diversity seems to be represented here than in the book scan list. We've got titles that don't appear on the book scan list like Assassination Classroom, Bad Angelina, and Dead Dead Demons. But we also got some usual uh, suspects that we also got in book scan like MHA, Attack on Titan, and Tokyo Ghoul RA. Just going into the top 20 a little bit, Card Captor Sakura also makes it into the top 20. So that's another similarity with the book scan list. Mm. But overall, it's just very interesting to see the differences in what's selling at general bookstores and what's selling at the comic book specialty shops. Yeah, just uh, again, I know we won't go over the entirety of the list, but I'm just kind of scrolling through here. And yeah, this list is definitely a lot more uh, a lot more diverse. There, there are certain titles on here that I don't think I don't think I've ever seen on the book scan list or I don't think would would usually ever make it like right after car capture sakura there's a uh, food wars volume 23 at number 12 um, on the list there so it, it's it's interesting how stuff like that and uh dead dead demons and assassination classroom uh seem to be a hit with like comic specialty so- shops in general specifically i thought that was interesting yeah, I mean, Seven Seas seems to be doing pretty well at those specialty shops because in addition to World's End's Harem, we've also got Cutie Hunting a Go-Go at number 14 and Two Love Root Darkness at number 15. So, hmm. yeah, I mean, a lot, it seems like people who go to the comic book specialty shops are searching for a very diverse breed of manga compared to, I guess, the general consumer's readership that attends the bookstores. The regular bookstores. Mm, but yeah, anyway, uh, My Hero Academia and Tokyo Ghoul pretty much conquer all at this point, so. Oh, yeah. <laughs> 
But I think that does it for our discussions of this month's lists. So let's get into some serialization news. And first, let's talk about some more Shaman King related news. We talked last month about Shaman King, the superstar and how that was going to be coming out, and those prologue chapters, Kodansha ran for it. But there's going to be another spin-off of Shaman King coming out in Shonen Magazine Edge, uh, drawn by Jet Kuzumura. And that spin-off is called Shaman King Gaiden Red Crimson. It will be about the character Tao Jun, or at the very least, the magazine's preview art features Tao Jun, and there's text saying that a crimson shadow will draw closer to the flower of the Tao family. So, that is very interesting. Tao Jun, for those who haven't read Shaman King, is the sister of Tao Ren, who is like the main rival of Shaman King. Hmm. Basically, the rival to main character Yo. I don't know how relevant she stays throughout most of the story because I haven't read all of Shaman King, but like the volume she's introduced in, like that entire volume is just a fight with her. Hmm. So uh, she, that's pretty interesting. So I guess something's going to happen to Tao Jun and that's going to get the Tao family involved in some big thing. Well, who knows what will that, that will be, whether it's going to be like a big conspiracy or like a big uh, fight to the debt. Uh, who knows? But. It's very interesting. Uh, so I guess moving on to our next piece of news, this year's uh, 23rd issue of Kodansha's Young Magazine uh, revealed recently that uh, Kengo Hanazawa is going to be coming up with a new manga. Kengo Hanazawa, for those who don't know, is the author of such acclaimed series as uh, I Am a Hero, uh, which I believe is being released by Dark Horse, if you want to check that out. Here's one of the better zombie stories out there. And uh, this new manga coming out from Hanazawa is called, tentatively called, Under Ninja, uh, which will begin serialization in the magazine's 34th issue on July 23rd. And uh, let's see. So not much else, not much is revealed about the series in particular, but apparently all we have is just, just some promotional text saying, quote unquote, do you know about the existence of those who are hidden? Because, you know, that, again, these things really just give us the full picture of what we could expect. <laughs> I think I'd be interested in a in a ninja series. I think that'd be, that could be kind of cool. From, like, the little I've seen of I Am a Hero, I guess, uh, I, w- I wouldn't mind checking out more of Hanazawa's work. But, I mean, I, I really do need to get on I Am a Hero, because I do hear a lot of good things about that series. Yeah, I Am a Hero is pretty good. Who knows if this series will be a straightforward ninja series? Uh, it might be about just some guy who thinks he's a ninja and dresses up <laughs> like one. <laughs> this character might be a little mentally disturbed like the main character of I Am a Hero. A little uh, delusional, schizophrenic. So it might be just another type of that story with that type of protagonist. Honestly, I'd that be even better. <laughs> yeah. But let's see. So moving on. Hiro Mashima. As you may know, uh, the author of such hits as Fairy Tale and uh, Rave Master um, is working on a whole bunch of things. Uh, he has a new manga coming out that he has shown uh, sketches for initially. He has new Fairy Tale stuff coming out, which yeah, he's got a lot of lot of the, a lot of that kind of stuff coming out. Um, but now he, on top of all of that. Hiromashima on Twitter recently has revealed that he's working on a secret project. <laughs> he he also mentioned how. Um, you know, working on all of these things at the same time has gotten him a little a little confused because uh, he, he apparently he just can't keep up. 
and uh, he also noted that uh, he's basically just coming up with ideas one after the other. So I don't I don't know if he means like he's uh, I don't know if that means he's coming up with just a bunch of new ideas for his new series in particular, or if he just has a lot of new ideas for series in general. But either way, um, apparently Hiromashima is not going to run out of ideas anytime soon. <laughs> I'd be interested in, I guess, what this new series would be. I don't know. We we know that Mashima can put in the work. He's clearly good about like like the dude's a machine. We know that. But I, I hope he I hope he doesn't like burn himself out. I mean, if he can manage like putting out three chapters a week for a whole month, I have no clue like how he has that stamina. But <laughs> yeah. I mean, damn, like, he can do it, it seems. Like, he's just that skilled. So, I mean, props to him. And, like, I'm looking forward to seeing what his new work will be about. Because, I mean, he certainly is uh, full of ideas. Uh, whether those are good ideas, eh, sometimes, you know, maybe not so much. But uh, it's very interesting to see that, you know, he is in this really creative uh, mindset right now. So I'm looking forward to seeing, like, what his new series will be about and where it goes. And I guess we'll find out on uh, June 27, 2018. I guess so. And, you know, maybe if it, if it's good, maybe we'll, we'll talk about it on the show. I don't know. We'll just have to see. Yeah. I think it'd be very interesting, but uh, we got some new projects coming out from Beloved Octors, but sometimes things are just uh, continuing. And one of those things that'll be continuing is Attack on Titan Junior High, which is getting three new chapters in the next issue of Bisatsu Shonen Magazine uh, from June, July, and August. There'll be three new chapters. Uh, they'll have opening color pages, and they'll tell the story of the neighboring Marley Academy, which is surely a reference to something that's been recent in the manga that I can't quite remember. But uh, yeah, so if you enjoyed the Attack on Titan Junior High spinoff, uh, you'll get some more chapters of those. I'm, I'm happy for you, Sid. Your favorite series is coming back. <laughs> <laughs> Man, you remember that discussion from two years ago? It was a funny one. I don't. I don't know. It was. <laughs> it, it was. <laughs> but no. That, that's, prob that's probably uh, no, one of I, my. I that's probably that. one of my favorite earlier discussions. It's. It's. It's oh, your. Yeah. <laughs> it's your favorite character in cross dressing or something. I don't remember. <laughs> it's your favorite character dressed in drag. That's what it was. Okay. Yeah, that was. That was. Yeah, yeah I remember that. That was funny. Um. <laughs> That's literally all I could think about when I saw the story was, oh boy. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's only back for a short time, so... Uh... Huh, callbacks. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> and But something I'm looking a little more forward to, and uh, hopefully I can read at some point, is some new Sailor Moon novels Ooh. written by Miyoko Ikeda of the Fairy Navigator series. Uh, she'll be do launching a new novel adaptation of, of the series for Kodansha's Awitori uh, Bunko label. The first one will be called uh, Pretty Guardian Sailor Moon 1, Chosen Guardian. It'll come out in June. And I guess it'll be like novelizations of the story of the series. Pretty interesting, uh, you know, nice to have new Sailor Moon novels and stuff even if it's like just a retelling of the story and i wonder if we could get these in english at some point uh i mean i'd say maybe there's a good chance i could see like hmm. i think there'd be the audience for it for sure i think so does does kodansha do light novels i don't think so right sure but i don't think it could 
just be Kadansha who, uh, you know, released it. Like, a Vertical released, again, the Seven Deadly Sins novel, and that's a Kadansha title, so... Who knows? I mean, that's true. I, yeah, I keep forgetting about that. Yeah, I don't know. I, 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 I'm sure there's an audience for it. I'm sure people would buy it, honestly. So. Mm-hmm. But in novel-related news, let's now transition into some licensing news. And we've only got a few pieces, but here's a pretty big one. Seven Seas has licensed the Ancient Magus's Bride novels. Ooh. And they will be... Releasing them starting this December with The Ancient Magus' Bride, The Golden Yarn coming out on December 11th, while The Ancient Magus' Bride, The Silver Yarn will come out on March 19, 2019. Both releases will have paperback and digital versions. These books contain stories by Yamazaki herself the mangaka of uh, Ancient Magus' Bride. And they also include stories written by other authors, including Yuichiro Higashide, the author of Fate Op. Apocrypha, Yoshinobu Akida, author of Sorceress Stabber uh, Orphan, and uh, various other authors as well. And so these novels were published last uh, year in anticipation of the release of the anime, but Seven Seas is bringing them out now. And yeah, I'm looking forward to reading those, hopefully, when they come out. Yeah, I'm sure. Um, again, I'm sure there's an audience for those. Obviously, they're picking them up, so um, that's probably a mute point. But anyway, so... <laughs> I guess our only other piece of licensing news, uh, something that happened very recently at the time of this recording. Um, so around the end of January, um, a new series started publishing in Shonen Jump Plus um, called Jigoku Raku, or otherwise translated as Hell's Paradise. And, uh, you know, I remember there was some early buzz about it because a lot of uh, a lot of manga authors that um, we enjoy works from, such as uh, Kenta Shinohara of Sket Dance fame, Yusuke Murata of One Punch Man fame, and uh, Kohei Horikoshi, author of My Hero Academia himself, all sung the series' praises, which... I'm guessing helped to get a lot of buzz because uh, I've seen a lot of people uh, get into it uh, since then. And so just recently, Viz actually published the first chapter of Jigoku Raku for free on their website. And um, so I don't want to give too much away about the series because I think it's really best read, best experience yourself. But it's, like the basic premise is essentially the story centers on a character named Gabimaru, who is basically an ex-ninja. And uh, he's basically caught in a predicament where he is basically set to be executed, but they try to cut this dude's neck, doesn't work. They literally try to have this guy, like, pulled apart by oxen, and it doesn't work. So they mm. try the most extreme stuff on this guy, and a bit of a warning, you know, the series can get a little violent and graphic at some points, but obviously there's a lot of violence. But yeah, that that's essentially kind of the premise of the story, and we're basically just learning about Gabi Maru as a person uh, throughout all these trials and tribulations, the, the many trial and error of him being executed and whatnot. And essentially, the, the end point of the first chapter, at least, is basically, you know, he's pardoned for his crimes on the condition that he go on an expedition to look for the elixir of immortality. So, yeah, that's essentially the story. I read the first chapter yesterday, and uh, you could probably find my tweets about it if you follow me on Twitter, at SniperKing323. But yeah, I really thought the first chapter was pretty good. I'm definitely going to be reading more of this. And, uh, you know, hopefully when and if this gets like a volume release, or I'm sure maybe it'll, it'll probably at least get like a digital release or something. I'm not sure. But if it gets like some kind of some kind of like volume release in English, I think maybe then I'd like to talk about it on the show. Um, Sid, I know you told me off mic that you haven't read it yet. Uh, what's wrong with you? <laughs> 
Uh, I'm busy because I have a lot of work to do. Excuses, excuses. uh... (laughs) Oh, I'm kidding. But uh, no, you should really read it. I think you'd really like it. Yeah, it sounds really promising. Kind of like, from the way you described it, kind of sounds like that arc in Blade of the Immortal where they're trying to experiment on Manji through like a series of horrific experiments to try and replicate his immortality. Yeah. And so they keep trying to kill him off in in different ways to see like what his limits of his immortality are. So Essentially, it's like, yeah. Yeah. It's, somehow this sounds even more graphic than that, though. So that's very interesting. <laughs> There's some graphic imagery here and there, like there's literally a panel where a guy's face gets burnt off. It's pretty brutal sometimes, but Oof. yeah. So, you know, outside of that, it's, uh, I'd really recommend it. Um, just on the first chapter alone, I really enjoyed it. So I can't wait to read more of it. And obviously we'll put links to the first chapter on the post for this episode uh, so people can uh, go and read that. Because again, it is, it, it looks like it's going to be added to the free section. Um, I mean, I'm assuming they're going to be doing more of it. So you know, if you if you have any interest in reading Jigoku Raku, again, it is free on the Viz website. And again, we'll leave links to that in the show notes. Yep, check it out. Make some buzz about it. But uh, that's about it for licensing news, though. Yep, and now let's talk about some industry news. And let's start off with a big story here. A new report about the anime industry and some of the trends that have been going on within it in terms of how it's been growing and stuff. We're going to talk about a report done by the Association of Japanese Animations, or otherwise known as AGA, which uh, published an English language summary of its anime industry 2017 report uh, last month. And this report examines trends from... 2016 and the conclusions it kind of reaches that the total market value for the anime industry in 2016 uh, was up about 9.9 percent from 2015 going from a gross revenue of 2.0009 trillion yen wow which is about uh 17.5 billion dollars in u.s american dollars which is uh up again from 2015's 1.83 trillion yen. So the industry has had an upward trend in total market value for quite a while now. Uh, in 2014, it was up 10% for 2013. and 2015, it was up 12% from 2014. So this isn't quite as big a percentage jump uh, between 26, uh, 2015 to 2016, but it's still a growth, which is very good. But what's interesting is that even though the industry is growing, the Japanese domestic industry is not feeling the benefits of that growth yeah. as much because what's ha- the growth is mostly happening in the overseas market. And while Japan does benefit from that, it's not as direct and not necessarily as beneficial because most of those sales all go to the licensing management companies and they don't distribute downward into the other sectors of the industry as much Hmm. the domestic market itself actually has kind of stagnated it's only grown about 3.8 percent in total from 2013 which the report claims is due to an unsuccessful transition from like existing means of consuming entertainment to like new means of consuming entertainment so like traditional television viewing experiences and then internet streaming and live events and stuff like the industry has lagged behind in terms of transitioning to that model and so that has hurt it a little bit but 
The overseas market, on the other hand, has grown 171.9% since 2013, and it reached a record high in 2016, or rising from 282.3 billion yen, which is about 2.631 billion US dollars, and it uh, grossed about 767.6 billion yen, or equivalent of 7.14 billion dollars in 2016. So that is like a huge jump from 2013 to 2016 that's like a difference of five billion dollars there yeah in just three short years yeah that's that's a lot pretty insane yeah that that is (laughs) but interestingly it's not really the western market that is growing the most here it's actually the chinese market which has uh been benefiting the most and like in helping this growth rise because the Chinese market has the most contracts with the Japanese animation industry, uh, and not just because, you know, they have streaming rights for Japanese, you know, anime, but they also invest in animation production committees. They outsource their own IPs to Japanese studios. So the Chinese market feeding the industry even more than Western countries. In fact, the United States is only like fort in terms of the countries that have the most contracts with uh, the anime industry. China is number one, South Korea is number two, and Taiwan is number three. It kind of makes sense that those uh, three countries are above the United States because they are more closely tied to anime production in terms of actually funding and making animation themselves. Whereas a lot of the United States investors are just like on the production committee and invest in the projects, but they there aren't like studios here in the U.S. that are making work for anime. Hmm. You know that they're not there aren't studios in the U.S. that are making animation for Japanese uh, productions. Yeah, so at least not a whole lot of them. But yeah, and so one other thing that's interesting to note is that the number of animated TV shows in Japan are increasing at a big rate here because in 2016 there was a total of 356 tv anime uh which included 90 continuing shows and 266 new shows which was an increase over 2015's slate of 341 shows and it's a continuation of a trend that's began in 2011 is just been increasing and so also worth noting is that the number of shows created for late night time slots has increased and exceeded the number of minutes that are produced for daytime television uh, which means that there are more shows aimed towards adults and uh, otaku so, uh, so to speak, than there are for like general audiences and kids and the like, which is a really, really profound shift. Mm-hmm. And so it's been pretty, it's interesting to look over all this information and see like where the industry is heading and what's the state of the industry really is. Uh, one other statistic that's an interesting thing to note is that the movie uh, side of the anime industry rose about 41% compared to 2015 because largely of the success of Your Name. Uh, So that's very interesting that one film might have like really uh, made that much of a difference. Wow. Yeah. So a lot of things to process here. It's kind of interesting. Like we here in the West have definitely benefited from how 
our way of consuming anime has changed in the last couple of years in terms of like our streaming model. And for us, like as just viewers, like we don't really mind that there's like so much new anime necessarily because like, hey, there's just more shows, there's more options. But like yeah. the industry itself doesn't seem like it's benefiting from that model that much. Mm. Uh, not directly, at least. So it seems like it's mostly benefiting uh, the consumers in other country rather than the country that is producing this content. So that's very interesting. And it's going to be interesting to see like where the line is going to be in terms of like how production models change and whether the industry will need to shrink in terms of the amount of uh, content it's making every year, like reduce the number of TV shows and stuff. So it'll be very interesting to keep track of that and also keep track of like how international collaborations like uh, Chinese, Japanese uh, anime collaborations or even U.S. Uh, Japanese anime collaborations will turn out because mm. definitely in a globalized market, there will be like more uh, international co-productions and that's going to change the market in a big way too. Oh, yeah. But let's move on to a different story here. Move away from talking about anime industry to talking about the manga industry a little bit. Though not a part of the manga industry I'm, I'm not terribly enthusiastic about. But because it's about digital manga and stuff they've been doing recently, which has uh, scratched some heads. Because recently they merged their e-manga and agadoc retail websites, which is like merging their e-book site and their physical book website. And so they launched the new site, which I think is just called eManga still or... But yeah, the big thing here is that when they did this big transfer thing, they said that customers should probably back up their digital purchases because they wouldn't guarantee that the account library will transfer. And then later in a newsletter, they said that only titles that are listed as streaming only will transfer to a new site, but they won't automatically add to user libraries. So it's like they did this whole big change thing. And so like now people can't really access their digital books. Uh, I haven't really checked to see if I can still access anything of mine, but I had mine all downloaded before, so I don't have to worry about that too much. But yeah, it's just digital manga is I guess is still around and doing stuff, but the, the decisions are co- continuing to cause headaches for us customers. So I don't know what they're doing. As somebody who like isn't involved with them in any way, shape, or form, it's even more confusing for me because it's like I'm mostly an outsider just looking in. And I'm just like I don't, I don't know. All I can say is I, I feel incredibly sorry for you, Sid, that you have to keep dealing with uh, DMP. Just give me the books I paid for. Damn it. <laughs> Like, they have the digital versions of all those books from that Kickstarter up on their website, but, like, they still haven't shipped the physical copies to backers, so it's like, what are you doing? I'm I'm sorry, I, I really shouldn't be laughing, but it's like, this, this is all just really annoying. You made the product with our money, now give us what we paid for! Give us what we invested in! Oh, well, maybe one day, Sid, one day, well, let's... Try and try and hold out some hope. Maybe I don't know. That'll probably only get us yeah. so far. I don't know. But let, let's let's move on from DMP. Uh, let's talk about some just just some uh, just some interesting 
stories here. Um, first one being that uh, Buronson, the writer of Fist of the North Star, apparently opened up his own um, his own manga academy in, in his hometown of Saku in the Nagano Prefecture on a- this past uh, April, actually. The program is called the Buronson 100-Hour Manga Academy and is being held at the Sakudaira Community Center, uh, where he is uh, ushering in new students. And it uh, looks like so far, a total of 31 students, ranging in age from teens to young adults, uh, enrolled in courses in the pursuit of their dreams to become manga authors or whatnot. So, uh, so far, students attend a total of 100 hours of instruction spread out among uh, 20 lectures throughout the year. Tuition is completely free, and students get to enjoy instruction from some of the business's best artists, writers, and editors. Over 100 applicants applied for the program, and uh, the inaugural class included 17 women and 14 men coming from as far as Kanagawa and Saitama. And uh, each student uh, varied in experience with newbies mingling with apparently previously published uh, manga authors, which is cool. And amongst some of the people giving lectures were creators such as uh, Mitsuru Adachi, who, you know, we know as uh, basically the person behind such classics as uh, Touch and Cross Game. Um, So that sounds incredibly cool that, uh, mm-hmm. that he's doing this. I wish I could attend something like that. That sounds amazing. That sounds like pretty awesome. I don't know if 100 hours is like enough to learn like all the tricks of the trade of manga, but like it's a free tuition and you get to interact with like industry professionals and like some of the best of the best. So it sounds like a really awesome experience to learn some tips and tricks and improve your craft. So that's really cool. I'm I'm sure 100 hours is enough to probably at least learn like really basic stuff, maybe. I mean, I don't know. Definitely. I mean, I think, like, for a total newbie, it's, like, gonna be a great, uh, good for a good start to, like, let you know, like, okay, here's what you can do, uh, here's, like, some tips of the trade, uh, and, like, how you can get started. And then for more, uh, experienced students, like, they can probably get some more, like, one-on-one with some professional mangaka and editors and stuff to, like, really get some more fine-tuning on, like, refining their craft. So I think, like, this is actually, like, a flexible program to meet students of different skill levels. So I think it's pretty awesome in that way. Mm, Yeah, so that's just a really cool thing, and I am incredibly jealous of the people who get to attend that, uh, get to attend those lectures. But uh, moving on from that... So the JCA, or the Japan Cartoonist Association, has announced the winners of the 47th Annual Japan Cartoonist Association Awards, starting with Daijiro Morohoshi's uh, manga compilation called Dijiro Morohoshi Theater, which won the grand prize in the comic division, as well as Yukio Shinohara's self-published art book, Hitoko Mark, that won the grand prize in the cartoon division specifically. Each grand prize included a gold plaque, medal, and a 500,000 yen in prize money, as well as, uh, let's see here, um, so something that I'm very uh, excited to hear is that uh, Gengoro T- uh, Tagame and his work, My Brother's Husband in particular, uh, received an excellence award, which included a silver plaque, medal, and 200,000 yen in prize money. Uh, again, My Brother's Husband getting all kinds of credentials, what with it being nominated for um, an Eisner Award, as we talked about uh, last episode of the podcast, for Best U.S. Edition of International Market in Asia, and uh, with it also being included in the uh, Great Graphic Novels for Teens list from the uh, American Library Association 
Great to hear my brother's husband getting more credentials, more awards and whatnot. Very interested to see what uh, Motohoshi Theater is all about. It looks very, um, just from the cover alone, it, uh, Motohoshi's art style looks very similar to something like Junji Ito almost. Um, not, not exactly, but the style looks somewhat similar to me anyway. I get a melancholy vibe off of the cover, so it'll be interesting to see what kind of story that's about. I definitely hope that these books that won the top prize here will uh, get licensed and translated sometime, because I would definitely like to check them out and read them. But like you said, it's always great to hear my brother's husband receive accolades, and it's always incredibly excited, and I'm really looking forward to reading that second book when it comes out over here this fall. Oh man, and I, I guarantee we will have another podcast episode dedicated to my brother's husband, you know, kind of compiling our final thoughts on the series as a whole, because I think that's, I think we're due for another episode about my brother's husband. Mm-hmm. And to round off our industry news, let's just mention that Comico has appointed Masaki Musha, who was the original editor for Kazuo Fujita's Ushio and Tora, as their new editor-in-chief of their NHN Play Arts Comico app on May 1st. Yeah, so Musha has 30 years of experience. He's worked on uh, the aforementioned Ushu and Tora, as well as some other Shogakukan titles like uh, Yokchi, Komori, and Shugo Sato's Umizaru, and Keiko Nishi's Otoko no Isho, and Anena Kekon. So, a lot of experience, and uh, it'll be interesting to see like what direction he might take the Kamiko app. And for those who may not know, Kamiko is a free manga and novel reading smartphone app. In titles that run on there include Real Life and Recovery of an MMO Junkie. So some pretty popular titles you might have and heard Nambaka. of. Yeah. So yeah, some some titles there I'm sure people have heard of. So that's interesting. So that's about it for uh, industry news. Now we can just move on to some miscellaneous pieces here before we... Uh get into our world trigger discussion so uh mr nietzsche in the convenience store is uh if you if you don't know is a i'd say a drama worth looking into on crunchyroll and uh like it's essentially just about these two guys who work in a convenience store one of them is a very um I don't know how you would describe him. Uh, not not so much weird, but like just very weird, nihilistic is, I don't know, like basically like, you know, you have this guy and then you have this other weird guy and they just have all these like different weird kinds of conversations and also Jiro Sato is involved. He's their store manager. And if you've watched anything that Jiro Sato is involved in, then, <laughs> then you know what to expect. <laughs> you know, we, we constantly talked about how we just loved his performance as uh as Han Peta in the Gintama live action movie. If you've listened to that episode of at movies, you should go listen to that by the way. And so, um, you know, I, I haven't seen all of it from, from, you know, the couple of episodes I've seen of Mr. Nietzsche in the convenience store. It's, it's very funny. I would, Definitely recommend it if you want to basically check out more uh, more work from the director of that Gintama live-action movie, uh, Yoichi Fukuda, I believe is his name. Um, so uh, I bring this up because apparently, you know, obviously, originally, uh, Mr. Nietzsche was a... It, the, the drama is based on the original manga of the same name. And apparently, Amazon has a listing for a bilingual English-Japanese release of Mr. Nietzsche at the convenience store uh, that is slated for a June 22nd release. 
Um, so I just thought that was interesting, you know, for those who may want to check out the manga. Um, I don't think it's licensed over here, and I don't know, not that I'm advocating for this, but I don't even know if people, like, translate it online or not at all. At least in my circles, people mostly talk about the drama. Like, I never hear anybody talk about the manga. Um, so... If you know how to work Amazon Japan and, uh, you know, you've always wanted to read this series in English, uh, this might be your best chance until maybe somebody picks it up for an, an actual English release. Um, so there you go. I, I actually might pick up a copy of this myself. I do want to read it. So uh, there you go. Just thought I'd mention that here on the show in case anybody wanted to take a look at that. It certainly sounds very interesting. And with the credentials involved with the live action adaptation, I definitely got to check that out sometime. And moving on, let's mention some new guests coming to the conventions. And a really excited one's coming to Comic-Con International San Diego. We've got Yoshitaka Amano coming in as a guest at this year's event. Amano, of course, best well known as the illustrator to Vampire Hunter D and Final Fantasy and having collaborated with Neil Gaiman on a Sandman graphic novel as well. Mm. He's been an industry veteran since he was 15 years old. Wow. So he's had a storied career and it's going to be incredibly exciting to see him come to another convention over here in the States at Comic-Con International San Diego. So if you are going to that, definitely if he's doing a signing, visit that. If he's doing a panel, visit that. Because you'll definitely learn something really interesting and you'll have a good experience. Uh, Comic-Con International is going to take place this year uh, from July 19th to 22nd at the San Diego Convention Center. With a preview night on July 18th and a gala award ceremony for the Eisner Comic Awards on July 20th. So look forward to that. Wish I could go, but man. Super exciting. Mm, yeah, that does sound very exciting. Uh, but moving on real quick, uh, we just wanted to make a mention that you can now watch the live-action Kakigurui uh, TV series on Netflix. It is streaming over here in the States, and while I personally am just kind of indifferent towards Kakigurui at this point, you know, for, mm. for those who... You know, I, I know there are a lot of people who really love the series, and I know I did see a lot of people really rave about the anime once that was finally released on Netflix, but... You know, yeah, if you if you enjoy Kakigurui, then, you know, this 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 will be the thing for you. So there you go. Go check it out. I'm definitely interested in watching it and comparing it with the anime and seeing like how they capture the craziness. So that'll be a lot of fun to compare both versions. Yeah. And it's very convenient that they're both on Netflix. I, I guess if, if I were, you know, if I were going to be uh, watching the live action series, like the one thing I'd be looking out for is how how expressive are these actors going to be? That's I think that's what's going to really sell the show for me. Mm hmm. If they can capture like uh, Yumiko's craziness when she gets into her gambling high, that'll be really they they um i mean they, they have a lot to live up to in that regard honestly <laughs> oh yeah <laughs> but yeah i love seeing new things be licensed and available and it's always so sad when the licenses expire and uh, they're no longer available and that is the case of case closed or the english adaptation of detective conan that Funimation has had the license to since 2003. They dubbed 130 episodes of. You know, they had the license for a long time, but after 15 years, they finally let it expire. 
all the episodes have been removed from Crunchyroll and their Funimation app. Like, Crunchyroll still has the episodes that they've been subbing from episode, I mean, 754 and onward. But, like, the loss of those first 130 episodes is really sad. Yeah. And I think that at least since Case Closed has been dubbed, at least those 130 episodes have been dubbed, that it might get licensed or skewed. Eventually, I wouldn't put it past Cisco Tech to license rescue it down the line. Mm-hmm. Disco Tech has also released a Conan related property in the fact that they've released the Lupin the Third versus Detective Conan films, both the TV film and the theatrical film. And I'm not sure how well those did, but I'm sure they, I think they did fine. So, one thing that I'm crossing my fingers for is that now that the license for Case Close has lapsed and they're free to grab, I'm kind of hoping that Disco Tech goes for it. And while I do not expect them to release a TV, series at all because at least not in its entirety i mean the dub you know that could be fair enough because you know 130 episodes it's a lot but it's not 800 plus <laughs> but what i do think that might be plausible and what i i'm hoping in a best case scenario if discotech ever tries to attempt this is that they release the movies because at the very least that is a manageable you know chunk of conan to be distributed over here you know discotech releases a bunch of the lupon movies you know even with the really obscure ones and i feel like you could do the same for conan i think that there is enough of an audience that while releasing like an 800 episode tv series and chunks of 13 is unmanageable like I think if you released one of the movies every now and again, I think that there is a market for that and that could be a viable solution to get some Conan properties out over here. Get some of the Conan anime out here at least. So that's what I'm hoping for in a best case scenario now that the rights have expired. But uh, I'm also just hoping that when someone does eventually pick these rights back up, that they get put back on legal streaming or, you know, just are made easily available again because you know i it was really convenient to be able to you know just watch case closed on whatever streaming site it was on for the past couple of years and it's you know very convenient to you know be pretty easily able to get a copy of the dvds whenever you needed to Mm -hmm. so i'm just hoping that it doesn't fall out of circulation and uh it's like presence on legal streaming isn't gone for too long at least for these early episodes technically we still have these new ones yeah that that was that was the thing that really kind of like kind of annoyed me the most was like because you know recently the first 130 episodes you know they were put up on crunchyroll basically as a uh, as a part of the the partnership between them and funimation so i figured you know i'm i'm sad it took like that long but you know i knew i thought eventually like they could at least put those up and you know that'd be a good start but those were up for i think literally like two or three months about four months okay, that, from January through April. Yeah, they were but, yeah, they were not up there not for that a whole long. long time at all. No. Like if you watched even if you watched one episode a day, you couldn't finish all of those episodes within that time frame at all. So <sighs> yeah, it was not long at all. Yeah, so I, I feel sorry for people who were finally for you know that that finally thought, hey, I can finally start with case closed. I can finally see what all the hubbub's about, and then pfft, it's just gone. Like that's. That, mm-hmm. I think that's the most annoying thing to me about this whole thing. Honestly, I didn't even think about the possibility of discotech licensing the movies. I think that would be really cool because mm-hmm. I've I've only seen a couple, but 
I'm assuming most of them are pretty good because, like, literally every time a new movie comes out, it just makes more and more money. So, yeah, I mean, they do really well in Japan. Uh, the latest one is doing so well that Infinity War can't top it. <laughs> wow. So, I mean, we we have to thank um uh we have to thank our uh the our uh, tall tall tan and handsome whatever his name is I forget. <laughs> Um, Toru Amaro? Yeah. I heard that, like, they gave him his own spinoff in Shonen Sunday or something, and, like, I guess yeah. that issue of Shonen Sunday, like, sold out because of that, so that's that, that's <laughs> amazing to me. Yeah. He's pretty popular, I, <laughs> I guess. guess so. <laughs> it's just kind of baffling to me as somebody who's not, like, completely caught up on Conan and is only, like, sort of vaguely aware of, like, current happenings in the series as it stands so it's it's just kind of funny to me that like this it's just funny to see just how popular this character is because i so you don't know anything about uh Amaro no i don't know anything about him other than he's okay. other than apparently everybody loves him and everybody thinks he's hot and that's <laughs> that, well, that's about that all i know is about true. him so it's just i don't know it's just really funny to you know look from the outside in but um i guess just going back to what i was saying yeah i didn't even think about discotech licensing the movies i think I think that's pretty plausible. I just I just hope something is done about picking up the rest of the series. I think it's too much to ask at this point for somebody to pick up 800 episodes to be released on physical media. But, you know, I would at least hope that maybe some kind of streaming deal can be struck up with somebody. Ever since Case Closed started popping up on Crunchyroll and they started doing more current episodes, like, I've just been hoping for years and years that, like... You know, we can at some point get that backlog of episodes. I know I know, a lot of work is going to have to go into those, and I don't envy anybody who has to uh, translate that many episodes of a show, but I would I would be forever in Crunchyroll's debt. At the very debt. least, maybe uh, greatest hits of episodes? Something. Like, get I all the plot-important episodes? I mean, that's still a lot. It's still, like, 200, 300 episodes that you'd have to do, because yeah. there's actually a lot of episodes that are important, but, like, still. Yeah. I mean, at the very least, the manga's still available, so... Yeah, so you know, that's true. There, there is a way to consume Conan in its entirety, which is good. Um, even if, even if the manga release over here is like a lot of volumes behind, it's still better than than nothing, honestly. So yeah. I'm thankful that Viz even still bothers releasing it. I'm kind of surprised. It, I'm like, I hate to say it, but I was kind of surprised it still made any made enough money for them to warrant it to keep releasing. Honestly, yeah, I'm pretty grateful for that. Yeah. So there we go. I hope this is resolved at some point because it is kind of weird to think that Funimation doesn't have the rights for that series anymore. I mean, yeah, 15 years they held on to it. So I don't really understand why when they didn't really do much with it after those first 130 episodes. But anyway, so I guess we could just move on from that and to talk about something that is... I think it's pretty cool. A lot of these gaming companies have been coming out with like mini editions of like their classic retro consoles and whatnot, and th and that's pretty cool. But so uh, Nintendo over in Japan basically released its own like little mini Famicom with uh, with some Shonen Jump games to celebrate the magazine's 50th anniversary. And uh, just to kind of go over the list real quick, we have games from such series as uh, Kanikuman, uh, Fist of the North Star, Dragon Ball, Saint Seiya, Captain Tsubasa. Hell, even a Roka Danashi Blues game. That's pretty cool. Just naming a few off this list here. I'm trying to look real quick. I guess 
let's see, Kinikuman has one, two, two or three games. Dragon Ball has a few games on here. Uh, Otokajuku has its own game on here, too. So, I mean, if you, if you like video games and you like Shota Jump, I'd say do what you can to go get this. Um, it looks like this will come out in Japan on July 7th uh, at a price of 7,980 yen, which is about roughly $73. So that's a pretty cool little thing that's coming out. Um, hell, I, I wouldn't mind owning this myself. Yeah, I'd consider uh, importing it. I love that they could release it over here, but probably a lot of obscure titles that probably wouldn't like grab people's attention, I guess. Probably not. No. So, I don't know. You got Dragon Quest in here. Those those Kinnikuman games, uh, they were licensed. Some of those. Oh, I didn't know They that. were releases like Muscle. Hmm. Uh, back in the day, so people have some nostalgia for that. Uh, and there are Dragon Ball games in there, so who knows? But uh, either way, it's really cool to see something like this come out. And uh, man, I, I might just get it, but we'll see. But moving on, let's talk about a cool thing that's going to be happening if you're a fan of Mukoyo Ano, author of various series. She has done so much, uh, including Shikar Shikarun, Memoir of a Morris Gentleman in Sakuran. And she's holding her first large-scale exhibition of her artwork at the Mitsubishi Estate Art Gallery in Fukuoka in June. The exhibition is titled Mokoyo Ano Exhibition Strip Portfolio 1996-2016, chronicling her various works from the last two decades or so, mostly focusing on her more uh, sexy, more sensual artwork, it seems. Hmm. So... It's going to be an expansion on her previous exhibition in Ikebukuro in 2016. There'll be 250 works on display, including manuscripts from the latter half of her work, Sakuran. And she will also hold a talk at the gallery on June 29th, followed by an autograph session. So if you're a fan of Mokoyo Ano and you'll be in Japan, it sounds like a really fun thing to go attend, especially since Anna herself will be doing a talk on June 29th. So I definitely check it out. Her art is gorgeous and I'd love to see go to an exhibition of all her works like just like all over the walls and stuff. It'd be really awesome. But it's good that, you know, it seems that her work is all being kept track of and she has like all of them like, you know, uh, catalog because sometimes, especially for older series, artists let their work. Uh, kind of falls through the cracks and they might lose some pieces of their work. Uh, that might have been the case here for a piece of stolen manga material from the series I and Makoto, a series drawn from Iki Kajiwara and Takumi Nagayasu's uh, 1970s romance drama series. Uh, Iki Kajiwara, for those who don't know, is the creator of Ashida no Jo, Hyoji no Hoshi, and Tiger Mask. Some uh, series that have gotten some buzz uh, recently thanks to a few revivals spin-off series. Uh, you might have heard of like Megalobox, Tiger Mask W. But yeah, so uh, apparently a piece of stolen artwork from the manga was put up on a auction site recently. And that shouldn't be the case because the work the artist Nagayasu did, uh, he held on to all of those materials and he never sold or transferred the art to third party. But 
during the serialization, uh, the original serialization in Shonen Magazine, the editorial department did lend some of that artwork out, and not all of that artwork was ever returned, so there are quite a few missing drawings from that period, and the piece that was put up on auction might very well be one of those. Hmm. And so Kodansha has asked bidders to uh, not go after this piece of artwork. They, they haven't stopped the sale, but they issued a statement that they are going to prevent such sales from occurring in the future. I don't know what their plan is, but they might just be going after to reclaim this piece of artwork themselves. Hmm. Uh, the auction for this did close on May 6th with someone reaching a bid uh, for it. But who knows whether the transaction will actually take place or Kodansha will intervene and uh, pay to get that back themselves or just like legally find a way to reclaim that piece of artwork. Mm. So it's very interesting because like there's a lot of series or a lot of and a lot of other missing art kind of like this that have slipped through their cracks back in the day and you know they're just scattered around and so they're in the hands of people who shouldn't like legally be uh holding on to it so it's very interesting to see another story like this for a classic title but in other news and speaking of classic titles uh shotaro ishinomori the creator of uh cyborg 009 among various other things Recently, uh, one of his earlier works, an early shoujo manga he did in Shugakukan Shoujo Club magazine that he did from 1957 to 1958, is uh, kind of being brought back a little bit. It's going to be reprinted, and that's going to be put out in a limited edition. The title of the uh, manga is called uh, She Wore a Blue Ribbon, and it's about a girl called Rumiko who grew up in poverty. Uh, it's a single-volume work that was that was like published in 1959. So the li- this limited edition reprint is going to be, you know, uh, very limited. There'll only be like 150 copies of it. It'll be put in a special box set to celebrate uh, what would have been Ishinomori's 80th birthday, uh, it's been supervised by Junichi Fukuda, who is Ishinomori's biographer. The release uh, has been carefully supervised to make sure it faithfully recreates the original cover artwork and the original binding. It also adds a story by Asuka Izumi Kochiro Nuruo Shiroibara no Monogatari, which Ishinomori originally edited and included story notes for. So that's a cool little bonus to include onto that. And so this special... Uh, limited edition box set is going to retail for about 54,000 yen or 495 US dollars and it'll continue an additional 192 page booklet and uh all copies of this box set are going to be marked with a serial number so you know like which number of the 150 box sets you have received so that's pretty cool thing to see like a a classic manga from uh more obscure classic manga from like one of the most famous and acclaimed creators ever you know be dug up and uh re-released like this i mean the price point is a uh, it's a little much uh 500 for one book but like it's pretty cool to see like some of ishinomori's early work resurface like this and uh be put out mm. yeah i mean it seems a little high but like i can kind i can kind of understand it like this is obviously a really sort of important piece of like manga history here just something that wasn't originally published I kind of understand it, but yeah, it's still kind of high. 
Um, but I guess just to move on, so via Anime News Network, uh, we have uh, print counts for a certain manga and light novel series back from uh, between March and uh, the beginning of May here of this year. And uh, we're not, we won't go over all of them, but uh, I just thought some of these um, print counts were kind of interesting here. So I guess the first one I'll mention is uh, Naruto, which apparently has 235 million copies in print. 140 of those copies are domestic, while 95 are overseas. So that those are some interesting numbers there. Chihayafuru has 22 million copies in print. Food Wars has about 14 million in print. Uh, Nisekoi with 12 million. Uh, Black Clover with 5.8 million copies in print. Oh, here we go. Uh, Yotsuba with 16.7 million copies in print. Uh, 13.7 of those copies being domestic, while uh, we have 3 million overseas copies in print. That's really interesting. I honestly... I honestly didn't know that uh, Yotsuba had that much in print, you know, outside of Japan. That's really interesting. I mean, it's quite popular. We skipped over the story, but uh, they did put artwork from the manga all over a train station uh, recently. So uh, it's, it's, it's quite popular. Just a few other series of note. Uh, Golden Kamui has about 5 million copies in print, along with a uh, series we've mentioned last episode, Beastars with 1.3 million copies in print. Um, and other new series such as We Never Learn, with 1 million copies in print, as well as Robot Laser Beam, with 700,000 copies in print. Um, so so those are those are some interesting figures there. Um, again, that's uh, this, is a, this is total copies in print. This is not copies sold. Um, so it's just kind of interesting to see how much of these certain series have been printed. And I guess just as far as light novels go, we have uh, Overlord uh, with 7 million copies in print uh, for Overlord. That includes both light novels and the manga adaptation, as well as uh, Log Horizon with 1.5 million copies in print. Um, Sound Euphonium with 1.4 million. Saga of Tanya the Evil with 3 million copies, as well as Sword Art Online or Alternative Gun Gale Online with 1 million copies in print. So so some some interesting figures there. Mm-hmm. It's very interesting to kind of look at these numbers and kind of evaluate how each series kind of stacks up to each other in terms of like the amount of copies in circulation because it kind of does tell you like how they are stacking up to each other a little bit because they print as many copies as they think there are a demand for. Mm-hmm. So looking at like. Stuff like uh, Food Wars and Isekoi, when you divide like the number of copies they have in print with the number of volumes they have, you kind of see that they're both kind of equal a little bit in terms of like they have like 500,000 per volume, it seems, basically. Mm. So like you kind of like think about it like that and see, hmm, so... I guess you can evaluate what the how successful a series is based on that and especially relative to each other when you kind of look at these numbers like that. Hmm. I guess as just as somebody who hasn't really read much past the beginning, I'm sort of surprised how much is printed of We Never Learn. They're really expecting that to blow up at some point. Yeah, I think it's been pretty steadily popular. We'll discuss something related later down the line, but you know, I think it, it has filled Nisekoi's niche uh, pretty much in Weefy Shonen Jump for now and it'll probably follow when it choose in terms of being as popular I think yeah it'll it'll be interesting to see where we never learns popularity is in the next couple years or even like you know when it eventually ends I, I'd actually be interested in keeping up the keeping track of the progress of that mm-hmm robot laser means numbers are also interesting to me just to think about because the series doesn't rank well 
in jump usually so a lot of people are worried about it constantly about oh is it is it gonna last but hmm, it's like worth really looking at seeing hmm is are the numbers really that worse in terms of copies per volume than series that seem to be more successful than it in terms of po- in terms of popularity rankings so i need to look at like similar series or like other series that are more in the bottom rung era of the table of contents and jump to kind of evaluate how well robot laser beam is doing but i feel like we never learn is definitely you know doing well but robot laser beam hmm i'm still unsure about but i'm still pulling for it i'm still hoping i mean this this might be an unfair assessment and i apologize if it is but i feel like with robot laser beam i'm sure it's partly because it is it's written and drawn by Fujimaki, who, you know, obviously Kuroko's Basketball was a huge series and had its very loyal following that I'm sure there are, there are probably a lot of fans of Kuroko, Kuroko's Basketball that have probably bled over into Robot Laser Beam. And I feel like name recognition is a probably a part of the game for this one, probably. But that's just my guess. I don't... I'm not, I'm not saying like, oh, the series is bad and it's only because it's drawn by this guy that it's popular. But, you know, obviously I, I can't speak to Robot Laser Bean's quality because I haven't read much of it. But I wouldn't be surprised if partly because of, you know, of the person behind the series that it's that it's doing as well as it is right now. Well, in terms of the amount of copies that they've printed of it, I wouldn't be surprised if because of Fujimaki's name recognition that they gave it like an early boost in terms of printing a bunch of copies. Right yeah, that's, on. that's what I was trying to say. But yeah. t- I don't know if that has uh, translated into sales quite as much. Uh, just comparing it with We Never Learn, you know, both series started up, started up around the same time. Uh-huh. And right now, We Never Learn has over a million copies in print over six volumes. But Robot Laser Beam only has 700,000 copies in print over five volumes. So, you know, We Never Learn has a much higher uh, count per volume average. Mm-hmm. And... You would think that for a series drawn by an established creator with a very successful work under his belt, he would be rivaling that or be above that. So that does make me pause and think, hmm, how well is Robot Laser Beam doing? Yeah, that that is really interesting to think about there. Um, but I, I think I think that's about it for um, for this piece of news, unless you have anything else to say. That's about it. So we're going to round off with just a, some discussion of a few polls here. And we'll start off with one of the biggest ones here. Uh, the ultimate Gundam poll that NHK, they held uh, during a program on BS Premium Television. Uh, they held this poll for about six weeks. Uh, voting took place between March 2nd and April 20th. And it received over 1,740,280 votes. So a lot of people voted on this. Uh, 22% were women, 78% were men. 30% of the voters were uh, in the age range of 20 to 29. 27% were aged 40 to 49. 26% were aged 30 to 39. 12% were 19 or younger. 5% were over 50. And 0% were over 60. So it's kind of interesting. It seems like uh, the... The main voter base here, the people who are really enthusiastic about Gundam are people uh, between the ages of 20 to uh, 50, but like not a whole lot of people, not not a whole lot of young people seem to be that invested in the franchise, which is kind of interesting. I'm not that surprised, honestly. <laughs> 
Uh, I mean, there's always a new Gundam, and it's always, you know, different, so you'd think uh, it'd be accessible also to new viewers, but we'll... I guess we'll see. But there were a lot of different categories that uh, they held this poll for. So it was like for multiple different things. But uh, just to go over some interesting statistics here. So what took the number one spot in terms of the best uh, anime series was the original Mobile Suit Gundam. Hmm. 78% uh, of men voted for it. 22% women voted for that. Uh, we got 50 percent of the voters uh, of that work in total were aged uh, between 40 to 49 and the demographics were also roughly the same for the second place uh, in that poll the Zeta Gundam but for numbers three uh, Gundam Seed 44 percent of the voters were women 56 percent were men and most of the people who voted that were between the ages of 20 and 29 uh, 45 percent of uh, uh, voters were of that demographic hmm. which makes sense because seed came out in the 2000s so k- teenagers who grew up watching that uh when it came out are you know in that age range that 20 to 30 year old age range right now so that kind of makes sense hmm. uh gundam seed is like of course not very well liked in the western fandom but but cha- but uh, japan loves it so very interesting so We'll uh, briefly go over some of the results here that I find interesting. Like, the best anime work is like a top 40. Uh, the best mobile suit's like a top 100. The best characters is a top 100. I'm, I'm not going to even go through all the, the top 10, really. Just pick out some of the things that are interesting to me about the results. Uh, partly because it would take forever because there's so many categories. Also because I'm not worst in Gundam fa- fair enough, but I haven't seen all of it. So there's only so much I can say about some of these. But yeah, so f- uh, to go over the best anime series again, the top three were the original Mobile Suit Gundam, uh, Mobile Suit Zeta Gundam, and Mobile Suit Gundam Seed. And then after that, we have Gundam Double O, which surprises me a little bit because Double O is another one of those series that is not necessarily well-liked in the Western fandom. Like, it it has some nostalgia for some people who watch it on sci-fi, like me back in the day. You know, because sci-fi aired it, like, next to Gurren Lagann mm-hmm. back when they had an anime block. But it's kind of like an updated version of Gundam Wing kind of but just for the 2000s which is kind of interesting that Gundam Wing is only number nine I I thought that would be way higher because that's that's like one of the most popular I thought but I was under the impression that that's a Gundam Wing in particular is probably more popular in the western fandom just because you know I mean, it is the most popular in the Western fandom, but it's still extremely popular in Japan because they continually make new spin-offs for it and they have merchandise for it. Mm, so it's like it true, lives yeah. on in the in, in the consciousness of Gundam fans and in like otaku minds in general. Like it was extremely popular, but like I guess there are just other series that like are more popular than it, or at least for the voter base of this poll. Uh, we got Char's Counterattack at number five. No surprise there. It's one of the most acclaimed. It's like pretty big deal as like kind of the the end of the Amuro Char rivalry that story we have Iron-Blooded Orphans it's no surprise that you know it's a recent series I heard you know it's pretty good I mean I I watched like the first season I enjoyed it Mm. uh Unicorns at number seven uh 
pretty good. Uh, G Gundam. I, you know, I'm surprised G Gundam's above Wing because G Gundam was hated in Japan when it first came out. Uh, people did not care for it, but I guess uh, its reputation has definitely improved since uh, the two decades that it originally came out. So very interesting there. Uh, Stardust Memory comes in at number 10, and I'm a little surprised at that because I feel like that's one of those ones that people forget about, but yeah. Pretty cool. Guess I'll skip over the mechs just because I can't remember what most of these mechs look like on the top of my head. Uh, I think the number one choice, the RX-93 Gundam, is a good choice. Uh, and then the Zeta Gundam, of course, is a good choice. But yeah, I can't remember all of these on the top of my head. They just have complicated names and I can't picture all the designs. Uh, for best character for all the combined works. So this is for like this character's appearance in the franchise in total. Because, you know, Gundam characters appear across multiple different works. Especially with the uh, original Universal Century timeline. So of course we have number one is we've got Char. Because, of course, Char is the most iconic. Mm -hmm. uh, and then we got, of course... Oh, Amuro, not far behind. He's number two. I guess Orga's number three, which, you know, he's a really recent character. I guess, like, he, he was just really popular, but fair enough. Uh, he was he was cool. We got the protagonist of Seed, Kira, at number four. We've got Graham Aker. God, I haven't watched him in Double O in so long. I don't remember who that is. Uh, Setsuna is on number six. Seltzer from Double O. Uh, the protagonist of Zeta, Camille, is at number seven. And Avogato is at number eight. Haman Khan. Oh, yeah, that's awesome. Uh, she's at number uh, nine. Good to see uh, her get some love. And then we got uh, Archon Zala from Seed uh, at ten. Like Char and Amuro being the top two, I guess, are, is both expected, but also, you know, the most satisfying. Because, like, who, well, who else would be the top two? I guess... I'm, I guess I'm disappointed that Minerva Zabi is not in the top 10, because I like her a lot from uh, Unicorn, but I don't know. At least Haman Karn's in there. She's awesome. Uh, and then in terms of best character separate work, and this is like evaluating this character in just one work that they appeared in, Org is number one. So I guess uh, that answers the question why he's number three in the combined work. I guess he's just extremely popular. Helps that he's recent. And then Char from Original Gundam is number two. Amuro, as he appears in Char's Counterattack, is number three. Makes sense. Uh, Camille from Gun Zeta Gundam is number four. Amuro, as he is in the Original Gundam, is number five. Quattro Bajina, who of course is just Char, is uh, from it's from Zeta Gundam is number six. Here is number seven. Char, as he appears in Char's Counterattack, is number eight. I, you know, I'm surprised that Char, as he is in Char's Counterattack, isn't higher I mean, I wouldn't put him higher than how he uh, was in original Gundam and Zeta Gundam. But, like, he, he also put as strong a showing in that as Amuro did. So I'm surprised he's a lot lower here. But, uh, anyway, Setsuna from Double O is number nine. And then we got Rambaral at number ten. Love to see that guy get some love. It's, it's always nice to see him pop up in popularity polls. Uh, well, that's nice team in general. It's a great character. And then, uh, best Gundam song. You know, I'm just gonna say that, uh, the number one choice was right. The Zeta Gundam opening is the best. Uh, both Zeta Gundam openings are on here, uh, with the other one being at number nine. But, like, the top one, Mizuno Hoshii Aiwo Komate, that's the best one. Glad it was rightfully put at number one. And, uh, I'm glad that the Iron-Blooded Orphans opening also made this, because I also like that, too. Uh, Just Communication made that, of course, a classic, and, uh, yeah. 
good picks overall. Won't go over all the, but uh, yeah, the the right choice made number one. So overall, pretty interesting results. I always like uh, seeing you know big polls like this, seeing like uh, who comes out on top. There definitely is some recency bias, I feel, with Orga having such a high showing. But, you know, he's a good character, so uh, no complaints there. Hmm. But yeah, a good good poll. It's just pretty cool to kind of go over a poll that had so many respondents like that. I mean, like 1.7 million. That's pretty awesome. Yeah, that's, that's a lot. I can only imagine how the results might differ if uh, the other poll we're going to be discussing got that much uh, responses to. But... The next poll we'll be discussing will be the We Never Learn uh, popularity poll that they recently did in Weekly Shonen Jump, and the results were published on the 23rd issue of this year, which came out on May 2nd, uh, but Riz posted the results uh, also on their blog on the Shonen Jump, on, uh, the Shonen Jump section, so you can also look at them there. But yeah, so the Japanese uh, poll results for the top five characters of course they were all the girls like all the girls were in the top five there's no surprise there but uh the number one with 5233 votes was kirisu kirisu was number one which surprised me because you know she's the teacher she's like i mean her shtick is funny i guess and she gets kirisu gets the most fan servicey moments like they find the way that's it to Give her the most, yeah, the most embarrassing and the most, like, the most blatantly, like, designed fan service moments. Like, they go out of their way to find situations to, like, have her ass showing, like, through her pants, through her skirt, or, like, have some embarrassing position for her to be in. To kind of have, like, a gap moe thing going on, I guess, because, like, she has such a cold and stern personality most of the time hmm. so like i guess that's what readers liked they, they like the fan service with her and they like her uh shtick in terms of like being the super serious person who can't take care of herself and lives like a slob at home so she has to rely on you got to clean up her apartment <laughs> but she's still like, strict with him and but and she is super stern with the girls but deep down she's also is trying to do right as a good teacher by them and just you know trying to make sure they get into they don't suffer too much by pursuing dreams they can't fulfill because she also has, you know, a history with that of being like wanting to pursue ice skating but giving up on that dream when she realized that there was just a gap between the talent that would take to actually do that as a professional career. So like she has stuff going on with her. You know, she's a good character. She has, you know, depth, but like But but, that, I don't but that's know. not that's not the reason too, that's not the reason they voted for it's a Sid. Not the reason. The reason is definitely the fan service. Huh. Uh but yeah, so you know, some curious chapters can get pretty annoying because some of the fan service is just really grown wordy when they do it with her. The means in which they get her into fan service positions is just usually so grating. It's just so forced a lot of the time. But like, mm. you know, I do like her character. I do think she's funny. Uh, anyway, Fumino came in at number second with 4,194 votes. Uruka came in at uh, number three with 3,500 52 votes. Rizu was number four with 2,421 votes. And Azumi was number five with 2,323 votes. And then uh, in sixth place was Riga's sister, which uh, who's only appeared in like three chapters. I don't know how Riga's sister ranked higher than Riga, the main character, supposedly, <laughs> who comes in at number seven. Mm, that's a little suspect, but, uh, but okay. 
Yeah, uh, Riga's sister was number six, so I guess maybe we'll see more of her now because she ranked so high in the popularity pool despite barely appearing in the series. She'll just be in the background in, like, every third panel. Best case scenario that might happen, she, she could just be an Easter egg, like the, the chicken egg thing that the author sneaks into every chapter. I'm worried that if she becomes more of a character, we'll have this whole, like, little sister thing going on that I, I don't, like, this little sister obsessed with her older brother thing going on that I'm like, uh, no, can we not do that, please? But, oh, uh, we'll see. Sweet Sweet is, uh... It usually knows how to have fun with these characters, uh, so it's, it's, it's all so maybe it'll turn out better than that. And then I guess uh, I also want to mention that Seki Jo came in number eight. Uh, very happy about that. She's fun. I'm pulling for her to actually be gay and like for her to like be one of these days come out as like out and out gay and not have it just be like the subtext that she just wants to be really close friends with Ogata. And I'm hoping seriously just goes to full mile with it. But uh, we'll see. We'll see. Anyway, the English results are interesting because the top two were flipped, basically. Fumino was number one um, and Kirisu was number two. And then Azumi is more popular with English readers coming in at number three, which bumps Aruka and Rizu down. Hmm. And then uh, the English readers do not care about uh, Yuiga's sister as much. Because she's not, like, individually here. She might be lumped in with Naruyuki's siblings at number nine. So, like, she might be lumped in with, like, her, like, Rika's little siblings. So, that's a big difference. Uh, she's not that popular. Hmm. And then, uh, Sekijo is still number eight. And then, uh, Biharu Kirisu is also in the top ten, uh, in both polls but higher than in the Japanese poll. But the English results are really funny because they have, like, uh, the most troll answers because they have the chicken egghead uh, Easter egg thing that Suisui puts in every chapter, number 11. Uh, they have the dolphin that stole Kirish's bra in that one chapter, <laughs> number 12. Uh, they have Wysan, the guy who voted for Marika multiple times in the Nisekoi popularity poll, said number 14. We, we have not even a character Character from another manga, like a guy who was famous for voting in the popularity polls for another manga, <laughs> made this list. And then we have the single udon noodle from that one chap, from uh, like a gag from one chapter of We Never Learn, that uh, that comes in number fifteen here. Those are pretty funny. <laughs> yeah, it's a pretty great, uh, pretty great like uh, troll answers here. So pretty nice, uh, pretty funny. Uh, yeah. I- so I just wanted to go over these results because I wouldn't have any other place to otherwise. And I think it's interesting. And I like We Never Learn. And uh, I thought they, I thought these results were interesting. And I'm looking forward to, you know, more popularity polls being done in the future. I always love the fact that we get to have the Japanese results and the English results. And I'm really glad that we're going to be continuing to get more of those for more series. Including uh, the next one that's actually happening pretty recently. Uh, yeah, so in case you did not know, uh, the first character popularity poll for Dr. Stone is uh, is now in effect. You know, while, while the Japanese have their own uh, popularity poll uh, going on, uh, uh, Viz and Shonen Jump are so nice enough to uh, give us a chance to vote for our favorite uh, characters in Dr. Stone. Uh, I have already casted my vote. and uh, Who'd you vote for? Uh, I mean, honestly, I voted for Senku. He's he's the best character. 
<laughs> but he's a pretty good character. I, I had trouble because I was like, man, Senku is a great character. Chrome's great. Gen is great. But then I thought about it hard. I'm like, you know what? I want to give it to Suika because she's a little bundle of joy. She had a lot of really nice, surprising, cool moments. She was pretty great in the tournament with her helmet and stuff, uh, being such a great prop. Uh, and you know, I liked it. I, I like that she's a little kid, but she's done a lot to help out the team. And I didn't think she'd get a whole lot of votes. I wanted to just throw her a bone. Uh, man, honestly, if if I didn't vote for Senku, my second choice would have been, um, I feel terrible because I forget his name. Uh, the guy who speaks a lot of pig Latin, the illusionist. Gen? Yeah, yeah. I really like him. I, th- I think he's a pretty funny character. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but... Um, so, you know, if you want to cast your vote for uh, for your favorite character in Dr. Stone, um, you can go to Viz's website. We'll leave a link to the poll in the uh, description for the episode so you can cast your vote. And uh, hopefully your favorite character will uh, will rise up in the ranks. I'm I'm sure Senku will probably be number one. Probably. Yeah. I mean, I, I, it's pretty likely. Man, I can't imagine who else would be number one. Like, because I feel like Senku just has the most presence. He definitely has the most personality, I think, out of most of the... Pretty much out of all the cast, I think, in Dr. Stone, just in my opinion. Like, uh, to me, he steals the show. Yeah, I mean, Chrome is also really good, I could, but I don't see him surpassing Senku. Watch <laughs> watch Taiju be, like, number one or something. <laughs> yeah, Taiju, even though he hasn't been in the series since chapter 14 or whatever. <laughs> now, we haven't seen him in over a year, but he'll be number one somehow. Uh, I'm interested in seeing how he ranks in general, like where he will rank. Will he even be in like the top 20? I would say he'll probably rank in the top 20, but I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if he didn't rank in the top 10, maybe. Yeah. I'd like to see, again, I'm sure Senku will likely be number one. I'm mostly interested in the results after that. I'm sure there'll be there'll be certain female characters who will be in the top five. Probably just Kohaku. Like, that's the only one I can see being top five. Because, I mean, like... I, like I love Doctor Stone, but I think the one thing the the one thing that does kind of irk me a little bit is I feel like Kohaku is like slightly sexualized sometimes. Yeah, all the women <laughs> are teenage to adult women. Like, have are sexualized and like he goes out of their way to like draw really uh, weird poses for them to show off their sexuality and like cover pages and color spreads is like weird. Like the latest one in the recent issue. There was like, uh, some of this anatomy is kind of, <laughs> kind of strange here, uh, Boichi. Uh, I'm not, I'm not really sure what's going on. Yeah, I don't know. It's just, uh, it's just kind of yeah. weird. <laughs> but yeah, you can go and, uh, go cast your vote. We'll leave a link in the show notes. I am pulling for Suika to be in the top 10. It could happen. Mm-hmm. So, uh. And then to round off, we have one final story. And, uh, this is a different thing than a popularity poll. We have a fan art contest. It's a nice way to get, uh, some fan interaction and show your love for Shonen Jump. Uh, so you can also win some prizes for your fan art. So, like, the, uh, Jump character arranged design grand prix is welcoming artists of all styles and skill levels to present show and jump with their personal interpretations of the magazine's character any character at all is fine provided they appear within the pages of the magazine so like any character from a currently running show and jump series hmm. and both professional and amateur artists are welcome to enter and any art style is welcome 
there are two major prizes up for grabs. The grand prize is the winner 500,000 yen plus a piece of art from a currently serialized artist. And then there's also an excellence prize of 100,000 yen. And not only that, but winners might be called upon later to do artwork for future Shonen Jump promotions. So entries are open until May 31st. I'll leave a link to the website where you can submit your entries in the description of this podcast. And yeah, definitely enter it if you are interested in uh, showing off your fan art and maybe winning some prizes for it. Mm, Well, there you go. You should go out and enter that. That sounds like a really great opportunity. Yep. But that about does it for the news. So let's get in our try-on bodies and head out to the neighborhood because we are going to be talking about World Trigger. Coming up next, Trigger on! Tryon bodies, and we're all gathered together in our team of four the Osamu Mikumo fan club team one of the Osamu Mikumo uh, branch. Uh, we've got our director Annalisa here. Yeah, Osamu forever. Woo! <laughs> we've got our what position are you, Wensleydale? I think I would be a trapper slash shooter. Okay, we got our shooter, Wensley the Old Cheddar here. Colton, what position are you? Um, hmm, that's a good. I was, I was gonna say, I was gonna say sniper too, because I feel like I'd beat the sniping type. I mean, sniper king three two three. It's, it's, it's in my username. I kind of have to be. Uh, that is perfect. That is perfect. So both you and Wensley Dale are snipers. Uh, I, I think, I think, I yeah, I think I'm betraying Uza by not being a, uh, a sniper. So <laughs> I, I'm gonna be one now. <laughs> I should be a sniper too, and we can all be Azuma Squad. Or not Azuma Squad. What is the other squad? Arashiyama Ari- Squad? That was him. Arafune. Arafune? Yeah, Arafune yeah, Squad. Arafune. Yeah. We can all be Arafune Squad. <laughs> we can, uh, <laughs> uh, but who gets to wear Arafune's hat? I think I would have. I, I um... Lisa does because she's the captain. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I would have Taichi's Uchanka. <laughs> okay, but we can all be uh, trained by Azuma. That could be our thing too. So we, we're we're a squad like uh, Arvuni squad, but we're all trained by the number one sniper, uh, Azuma. There we go. So we are all gathered together here, and we are ready and excited to talk about World Trigger by Daisuke Arshihara. We're celebrating its fifth anniversary since being uh, starting being serialized in Weekly Shonen Jump. As part of our ongoing celebration of Shonen Jump's 50th anniversary, lots of things to be excited about. World Trigger is one of my favorite series that was running in Weekly Shonen Jump. Sadly, it's been on hiatus for a year and a half, but we are still super excited to talk about it and give it some love. And yeah, I'm super glad to be joined by all these wonderful people here today to talk about it, including, of course, Annalisa, who is, as we all know, the letterer for World Trigger in Revision and Jump and for Vizmita, as well as the founder of the unofficial Osamu fan club and number one Osamu Mikumu fan in the world. 
Yay, Osamu! <laughs> member number 69! <laughs> yep, and right. number 55 represented right here. And speaking of <laughs> Wensleydale, number 69, Osamu Mikumu fan here. Wensleydale is the host of Stammer Scream, our rival uh, Shonen Jump review podcast. <laughs> as well fight, as fight, the fight, voice... Fight. Of Osamu Mikumo in uh, Team ODAR's World Trigger of Brit series, World Triggered. So he truly encapsulates the Osamu experience because he has been him. He has been inside him. Ah, oh, that came out right. <laughs> <laughs> this isn't one of Chris's erotic fans. I'm proud to have been so. <laughs> Uh, I am proud to have been his vocal cords. Hello, my name is Osama, and uh, my dream is to become a harem protagonist. <laughs> <laughs> I believe in your dream, Osama. I believe in you. Ah. Oh. <laughs> How far will he go? We just gotta watch. Keep watching the Abyss series to find out. <laughs> oh yeah, yes. All those episodes that we released. Hey, you're working on episode three. You told me. Uh, yeah, yeah, uh, we are in the editing phase, so uh, we should be ready to release in a month, of, month or so, maybe. <laughs> awesome, I'm looking forward to it. Same, same. Mm-hmm. Cheers. I'm, I'm eager to. Uh, I'm eager to talk about World Trigger, and um, and of course, I'm eager to uh, wait for. Ashihara Sensei to get better, so, so that the story may continue because because ah uh, he left on such a uh, he left us on such a cliffhanger, and I uh, really want to see the next match. Yeah. Oh yeah, but I'm so glad we're surrounded by some real world trigger enthusiasts here today because this is kind of going to be a repeat of that Black Clover re- discussion we did last <laughs> year because we've got Colton here as our token meh. Guy on the series. <laughs> <laughs> yep, I'm. I, I unlike with Black Clover, I, I'm not totally, you know, I'm not gearing to like totally shit on it at, like I was at first. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm mostly indifferent to World Trigger. Um, I, I like it well enough, but I am definitely not pas- as passionate as the three of you, <laughs> and I'm kind of jealous of that. <laughs> Join us. <laughs> Join the Osamu Mikumo fan club. We have cookies and nice cards. <laughs> Stockholm Syndrome st- uh, strikes again. <laughs> I'm sure within the next couple of months, I'll have an epiphany and realize that World Trigger is the best thing I've ever read, and I'll become Osamu fan club member number, I don't know, uh, 152 or something. I'm, I don't know. <laughs> Man, if we get up to that number, that'd be awesome. <laughs> how, how many how many people are a part of that fan club i'm, I'm curious 99 oh wow okay oh, nice oh. Oh. So out there listening to this be the 100 member you could be 199 just sent me a message saying that she got her card uh wednesday i think it was so nice join today <laughs> uh, honestly that it's very that's, nice that's kind of enticing i almost want to be member 100 <laughs> just to be 100 do it colton <laughs> Do you I, have I, I, <laughs> I do love the card you sent me, uh, Annalise, though. Uh, 
so um, I um, I recall getting a card that, that uh, I don't have it right now, but it had a drawing of Osamu saying "I need an adult" and uh, Zapdos right there uh, in the corner saying "Yas." <laughs> yeah, did, did you ask me to, to wait to send your card until you could be sixty-nine? Uh, absolutely, I, um, <laughs> I had to wait. <laughs> I had to wait, even if I wouldn't be uh, considered in in uh, Chris's contest. So, <laughs> uh. Uh, still, it was worth it. Thank you for that. <laughs> I'm glad you liked it. Uh, that's awesome. But yeah, I guess we should dig into World Trigger itself here and begin our serious discussion. But before we do that, we should go over just how we got into World Trigger. Like our when we started reading it and our first initial impressions of it. And I want to begin with Annalisa because she started reading it before all of us by virtue of working on the series from chapter one. Annalisa, would you like to go into your initial thoughts on World Trigger? So... I lucked out, I think, because I was I was assigned the series. I had just finished work on uh, another one of my children, uh, Takamagahara. Mm-hmm. Which we talked on the show a few weeks ago. Colton and Maxi did. <laughs> I love that series for all its flaws. I love it. Um, <laughs> but uh, another editor, so, so I finished that series, and then... Uh, an editor, Hope Donovan, was like, hey, I know you don't have any jump series right now. We're going to start this new one. It's sci-fi. Do you want it? And I was like, I don't really like sci-fi, but I, I need some work. So I'll take it. And we thought at first, and I don't know why we thought this, but we thought its name was Trigger World. And so I, I can still go on the Viz servers and there's still a folder for Trigger World. And there's, there's nothing in it. And Soon after, we're like, oh, it's World Trigger. That doesn't make any sense, but okay, okay, we'll, we'll go for it. And, you know, I, I remember seeing the um, the manuscript for it and being like, so it's like aliens? O- okay, cool. That, that seems cool, I guess. Whatever. And I liked the first chapter okay. Um, like, I thought it was interesting, but like I said before, I'm not a huge sci-fi person. But it, it, I mean, it's just one of those series that just grows on you. And within the first volume, I was just like, this boy Osamu, I shall protect him. And it (laughs) took a little while before it kind of got blown out of proportion. It wasn't until um, his battle with Kazuma in, I think, volume five. Oh, that was such a good battle. I, I sent a picture of the screen cap where Osamu says something like, uh, one more battle. Because Kazuma's like, I don't know why Jin gave up Fujin for you. And Osamu's like, one more battle. And I was just like, oh, this boy is the best boy. Oh, I love him so much. I need to protect him. And I ended up printing out that screenshot. I have it about three feet by two feet. It's like eight pieces of, of printer paper all taped together. And I put it on the, my staircase so I could see him every time I went upstairs. Oh, wow. Is it still up? Uh, so it, it's it's still up in a different location because I've moved since then, but I still have it. Um, but I took a picture of it and I sent that to my editor and I'm like, I guess I'm the president of the creepy Osamu fan club now. And she sent back a sketch of the squad emblem. And, uh, and it was pretty much the Osamu fan club squad emblem. And we had to make club cards, so... Yeah, I was 
that that's my what as my dad would say that's my uh five minute story for a one minute explanation of how i'm into the series <laughs> nice we got the origins of the unofficial samu <laughs> fan club the long secret unexplored untold origins <laughs> Very awesome. It's because I'm a creeper. <laughs> no, no. Our love of Osamu is pure. <laughs> yes. We, we love and will protect this poor boy. <laughs> sweet, sweet boy. Well, anyway, uh, I guess I will go next as number 55. Which puts me seniority over Wednesdale. <laughs> okay, so we're, so we're going by order by order of membership. Perhaps, uh, yeah, yeah. Let's do it that way. And Colton will be last because he does not have a number yet. Like Wednesdale, my story with World Trigger begins uh, with weekly manga recap and uh, learning about the series and getting into it through them. Now, of course, Weekly Manga Recap, when they started reviewing the series, uh, was not particularly kind to it. Uh, it, it took a few months for it to warm them to warm up to it. it, it it's just so boring. How many duck faces are there in this chapter? Uh, 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 there's 16 du duck faces. Uh, okay, there. Recap done. <laughs> there was that one week where Chris was reviewing it by himself, and uh, he'd spent a lot of time complaining about why it was number three in the rankings last week, while uh, <laughs> Rogers being cancelled. But yeah, uh, I fell off of Weekly Manga Recap uh, before they got to that turnaround point where World Trigger really started really enjoying it, and I came back in later to the year, and I was like surprised, and they were like praising it so much, and I was like, whoa. It seems like it got really good because they, they're they loving the series now. And so it took a little while after that for me to get into it. But when the anime was starting up, I finally decided, yeah, I'm going to check out the series now and see how things are going with it. And I decided after watching the first episode of the anime that uh, I should just read the manga, stick with the manga, uh, which I did. So I've only ever seen the first episode of the anime. Uh, outside of clips and stuff, but yeah, and so I caught up to it uh, as much as I could with what was out. And then when they did a free promotion for uh, Shonen Jump in uh, the beginning of 2015, where they had like four issues free for a month, I, I checked those out and realized, oh man, Shonen Jump is such an amazing service. I need to subscribe right now. And Thank you. I did. And uh, I read New World Trigger chapters every week onward from that point, and I was one of my favorite series to read every week. And I enjoyed being a part of the fandom that was kind of, of World Trigger that was kind of built around Weekly Manga Recap uh, and like people from there who are really passionate about World Trigger, and like that's how I learned about the Asamu. Uh, unofficial Asano fan club and entered into that and I actually won that uh, contest that you and uh, Weekly Manga Recap did like in the summer 2015 uh, where Chris was giving away signed copies of his Barrage volumes to oh, uh, a yeah. lucky winner and so I received those and they ha were it was really cool to have those so I have that very happy connection as well so yeah I love World Trigger and I miss it very dearly, but yeah, it's a great community to be a part of. It's like really fun and welcoming and super nice. 
And Wensleydale, since you are our uh, fan creator in that community, creating the World Trigger Abridged series, I think that's a good transition to telling your story, your World Trigger origin story. All right. So I got into World Trigger, surprise, surprise, through Weekly Manga Recap, as it got added as a regular series there. Bless you, Weekly Ma- Manga Recap. Thank you for doing this. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so yeah, initially I liked it, but not as much as I do now. Um, uh, as I've told you before, uh, World Trigger has a lot of reread value. So uh, as I read the series all over again much later in preparation for uh, the writing of our abridged series, I I became I became more and more invested in the detailed web of relationships and border and the subtle character arcs going uh, on in the background. Uh, the one thing I knew from the start uh, was that uh, Ashihara's storytelling is exactly my cup of tea. So it's it's very character-driven. He's not afraid to introduce a cast of thousands and then masterfully keep track of everything. And it's clear that he's planned a lot from the get-go, which I always try to emulate in my writing. And then there's Ashihara's humor, which is very um, deadpan and subdued. Uh, it's... Uh, it's it's more like uh, Peanuts than uh, the exaggerated, bombastic One Piece uh, type of humour. Uh, I've eventually come to love both types, though. Uh, if uh, if you thought eggplant curry is the funniest thing uh, ever <laughs> in, uh, in World Trigger, uh, check out the Border Mini Profiles, because there are some serious hidden gems in there. Yeah, I love Ashihara's sense of humor so much, and all his, like, descriptions and the character profiles are super funny. You mentioned last time uh, uh, Arashiyama being uh, a siscon and a brocon at, uh, at the same time. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and that his, like, character description is, I like this character a lot, but drawing his hair is a pain in <laughs> big, bold text. <laughs> 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 Oh, there's so many great ones. Oh, we're definitely going to talk about like Ashihara's sense of humor as we continue on the discussion because it is a real treat. But let us talk about Colton and how you got into a world trigger. Mm, so yeah, um, I just want to backtrack and say I'm I I'm not so much met on the series as I am just kind of like I I feel like out of probably out of the four of us I'm probably the most casual fan of world trigger where it's like you know i like it just fine but i'm certainly not as knowledgeable about it or as passionate about it as everyone else on the call um but you know i when, when i first got into world trigger i think it was pretty early on too i want to say as far as like like as far as like chapter seven or something it was really early on uh that i got into it um because i i think i i i saw i saw it around and you know, I would peek at it every once in a while, and I'd be like, oh, this looks kind of neat. But then, you know, I decide to... What what was it? I, I, I saw it around, and, you know, I read a bit of it at first, but I wasn't really too keen on the beginning of it. I didn't think it was super interesting. Um, it wasn't until about, I want to say about, about a year or two later that I actually seriously started reading it and catching up with it. Because um, I guess just a little fun fact, uh, it's kind of because of World Trigger that I ended up becoming a member of the now defunct uh, Anime 3000 network back when I used to record the manga corner because uh, uh, my host at the time JD was looking for people who to talk about World Trigger and she 
I mean, bless her heart. I love her, but she she didn't do the she didn't exactly do like the most thorough search for people to talk about World Trigger. I think I think she searched for World Trigger tweets, and I just happened I I just happened to be tweeting about both World Trigger and Gintama at the time, and she was looking for people who liked both. And I guess she was like, "Hey, you should come on and talk about both of these things with me." And I'm like, "Okay, I could definitely talk about one of those things." Um, <laughs> Um, so, so I eventually did that episode, and because of that episode, I ended up reading up to like, I, I think it was like the like the very middle of like the the large scale invasion arc or whatever you want to call it, and it, it was it was really only around that arc that I really started to get into World Trigger, and I was really interested in seeing where the series could go from there, um, and you know I I really I, I think it's I think it's safe to say that's probably my favorite arc in World Trigger so far. Um, and I think, like, originally I dropped it, because, I don't know, I think, the, part of the reason I, I don't like World Trigger as much is because I think I prefer reading it in chunks than I do weekly. Mm-mm, I hear That's that. That's fair. Yeah, because World Trigger is just one of those things to me where it's like, you only get so much of the story per week, and I feel like I benefit from it personally from reading it a few chapters at a time than, you know, just because again i feel like you only get so much of it week to week the story that is so um so i i dropped it at first and it's only it's only just recently that i like read all of it for the podcast today and i th- i think i like it a bit more than i used to but you know it's it's still one of those things where it's like i like it but i don't necessarily love it that's understandable i think it just uh, has to do with like different preferences and storytelling and stuff. So, but but I but I think it's also because I, um, I I didn't nec- I didn't buy any of the any of the volumes just because I I've been subscribed to to visit Shonen Jump since like 2013. So I I had pretty much almost all of World Trigger's run. So I pr- I pretty much read through it all that way. Um, and I, I'm only just now realizing, oh, there, there are some cool extras in the volumes and stuff, and I feel like I kind of missed out on some of those, because some of those sound really funny. <laughs> oh, yeah. You should definitely check out the volumes if you've never checked them out before, because all those bonus pages, and also all the, like, yeah, all the, like, character profiles that Ashihara does, both the ones at the end where he, where he kind of, like, has more jokey descriptions of the characters, and also the ones during, like, the middle of the volumes where he actually kind of goes into, like, how he thought of designing this character and, like, what he thought of how, what he thought about how the character's role in the story kind of turned out. All of those are, like, really fun to read and also very interesting. Like, uh, who is like there was the guy that confronted Huse in the Galapula arc? Like I remember uh, his yeah Reggie. Like I remember his comment like saying, "Oh, this guy ended up being the MVP of the arc because he did something that I couldn't do with the other characters in terms of advancing the story." The story with Huse, and like he also was this very emotional character that uh was very refreshing for World Trigger. So. Yeah, I, th- I thought that was a very interesting op- like observation that he was like thinking of. Uh, also, like during the after Krator arc, like when he m- mentioned like details about like some of the like, after Krator characters that were like you know not said in the story, like stuff like that Mira is probably going to have a political marriage to either Hyrene or Ron Benign, and. Uh, that he designed her based off the devil and stuff. Like, there's a lot of really cool, like, uh, 
insights into his thought processes in designing characters and like how he used characters in the story that I really appreciate, like to see how he constructed the story and stuff. Hmm. And also, of course, a sense of humor about his characters is also a lot of fun, too. Like how he considers Mr. Kenyuta to be one of the three mascots and Moe characters of uh, World Trigger. (laughs) 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 I I didn't realize at first that uh, he was a freaking Tanuki. Yeah, yeah, Yeah. there's there's, uh, Kitsune and uh, Tanuki, Netsuki and uh, and Kita. Oh, that makes sense. Oh, it, fit, it fits Natsuki so well. <laughs> oh, that's great. But yeah, we've all got very interesting, unique uh, entries into World Trigger. And now that we've gotten our initial impressions out of the way, why don't we dig into our thoughts as a series on the series as it progressed? And we'll kind of go by an arc by arc basis. Let's start with maybe those first. A chunk of the story, which first 20, 30 chapters, which I don't know what the official designation for this arc is called, but like everything before they, Atomic Toma 2 is like officially a team, I would say. I, I'd say it's an arc. I th- uh, I think the uh, the wiki um, um, has it as the introduction arc, although it, it kind of splits when um, the Miwa fights start. Yeah, because at that point they have the team set, and then I, in my mind, I I kind of thought of everything up to the invasion, kind of as like one chunk of the story, if we want to think of it that way, because we're kind of getting introduced to all the characters, and Tamakomutu is just forming, and then the invasion happens, and then that's like the next half of the series up till that point, because we have like forty three chapters of of this arc where we're getting to know Usamu, Yuma, Jin, and Chika, and then we're getting to know Border, and then we're getting all this conflict over Border of whether they're going to allow Yuma to be a member. We're going to, we have the formation of the team of Yuma, Usamu, and Chika, and then we've got some early training as they're making their way up to B rank, and then the invasion starts, and then the, like the next 43 chapters are the invasion, which is like it's just as long as like the all the stuff that came before it. Very true. Although although the uh, Black Trigger capture arc, uh, when Jin has a fight against you know everyone, is a pretty clear split for, from um, uh, from the arc surrounding it. So so yeah, uh, I love that arc by the way. Uh, also also the introduction of naive girls. Scruffy, Hotty, and composed beefcake. Yes, <laughs> they have the best nicknames, Tamakoma. <laughs> I mean, I forgot uh, Karasuma's. I forget Karasuma's name a lot. Uh, at least during the original one, I forgot his name a lot. But because we think on recap, always referred to him as Scruffy Hotty. I remember that. <laughs> it's so appropriate. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and, and, and he just uh, uh, the fact that he just goes with it so stoically is is the best. Hello, I'm. Sc- Hello, I'm Scruddy Pot- Hottie. Nice to meet you. Uh, people also call Reiji Beefcake like a lot too, so you can easily identify that nickname. I think Konami's nickname is probably the one that gets used the least. I mean, yeah, because it's more like a character quirk, I guess. It's the weakest, really. Mm-hmm. 
In spite of that, and she's uh, one of the most popular characters, though. So. Yeah, <laughs> Konami manages to stand out on her own uh, in comparison to, to her teammates, uh, I guess, so she doesn't really need a nickname. But to start at the beginning, when we're first getting used to Yuma and Asamu, like those first maybe 10, 20 chapters, because I know Colton said that he wasn't like super into that early part. Like, what are our opinions on that on how it developed? Because that's also the part where we theme on a recap was like super harsh on the series. And so I was, I remember that. And I keep thinking about that when I was like rereading the early parts of World Trigger and I was like, I don't really see what is off about this. Like, what would draw such disinterest, necessarily? Because I feel like the storytelling is very well done in terms of pacing. We get to know Osamu and Yuma and what their deal is pretty quickly. And I think things escalate pretty fast, because by the end of the first line, you're you're meeting one of the top A-rank squads, and we're meeting uh, one of the stronger characters in the series in the form of Katora. And from there on, we just continue getting introduced to more like, important characters, because after that we get introduced to Jin, and then shortly after that we get introduced, like, to the border higher-ups, all the people at HQ in that inner circle, and then we get Chica. So, like, I feel like things build at a pretty steady pace uh, in terms of, like, getting us deeper into the world and what we need to learn about, like, the series. And so, I guess on a week-to-week basis, I I suppose I could see like when you don't know where this is going that you're not sure like what to latch onto. but when I was rereading it I was just noticing man Ashihara really developed as well he seemed to have like all his ideas very well taught out and he developed them at a good pace though I do know that he did change his plans a little bit because he introduced Jin much earlier than he intended to I believe there was an interview, I think it was with Hope, uh, that was done a long time ago, a few years uh, ago. That one was with uh, uh, Alexi, yeah. Alexi, yeah. And I mentioned that uh, Ashiara's editor did mention that. So there, he did change his plans after the response to the early chapters, but I actually, I honestly think he was doing a really good job with them, and... Th- when he made the transition and had to change plans to introduce Jin earlier, it didn't feel off. It didn't feel like, oh, uh, let's change course and introduce like this characters all of a sudden. It feels like, yeah, this seems like an appropriate time to do this. So what do you, what do you guys think about these early chapters? Do you agree that they're one of the weaker elements of the series? Or do you think that upon reflection, they're actually very well done? It's very true that Ashihara structures uh, his arcs very well. Although, although at the very beginning, um, uh, he has a lot of information about uh, about his world, and he dumps a lot of that uh, pretty, um, you, you know, a, a lot of it pretty quickly. So I was uh, left a bit confused at the start with the Trian soldiers being called neighbors, and uh, yet in the case of Yuma, we uh, we have a, a neighbor taking humanoid form, but then they keep talking about Trian soldiers uh, as um, as if they are neighbors, 
Um, so I, I get the reasoning in universe that the public doesn't know the neighbors are living beings, but yeah, it's it's a lot of confusing terminology for the reader at the start. So, so I I get really why it might uh, throw some people off. Yeah, yeah. There's there's a lot of information. Like there's a lot of world setup, and so you you kind of like I think he does it really well, but you still have to set up all these things. Like, yeah, what are the neighbors and what are the, you know, the Trion soldiers versus Yuma versus, you know, what's border and what's happening in the world. And now there are different types of triggers, like the whole um, Jin versus the world sort of arc. I think it's brilliant, but it's, it's really just explaining different positions and different weapons and stuff. And so I could see how people could be like, ah, you know, I'm, I'm not into this, but. I think for what it is, it's done really well. Yeah, it's really a personal thing whether it manages to hold your attention for these 20 chapters since, yeah, in- introducing so many things at the same time may seem a little clumsy, though this arc definitely isn't without merit. Mm-hmm. Would you guys say that the the exposition in the early chapters detracted from characterization or character development? Do you think that they detracted from something like really emotionally gripping to latch onto? Colton and I were discussing yesterday off mic uh, about wh- why we thought My Hero Academia's first chapter is one of the best first chapters in any Shonen Jump series. And we uh, we feel, uh, at least I feel, that it's because there's such a strong emotional core to it and such a powerful cathartic climax to that first chapter where it's like you you feel like it's almost a self-contained story in a way as a one-shot, even, because you have, like, a full emotional arc for Deku in that first chapter, and it feels like it comes to a really powerful point when All Might tells him, you too can be a hero, and he breaks down and cries, because that's all he's ever wanted to hear, and he proved it, and someone's acknowledging him, his hero's acknowledging him. And, like, for the first chapter of World Trigger doesn't really have a strong arc like that. We do get to know that Osamu is a border agent. We get a sense of what he might fight for, and we get a sense of what Yuma might fight for. But it doesn't feel like there's like some really strong Im- connection between them in the first chapter as of yet. It, it more just like teases bits of the story, whereas y- you're right, like uh, My Hero Academia is more like, yeah, it could be a self-contained story. Like it's such a strong first chapter and not to say that world triggers isn't it's just not as an emotionally powerful introduction i think yes and i think that makes a difference as a first impression when i'm rereading the series and i know where things are going the first chapter world trigger feels very appropriate for what it's doing because i know where the next chapter will lead and where it goes after that but when it was first coming out i can see why this first chapter didn't click with a lot of people because it feels like, yeah, you're getting a lot of information about this world, but not enough information about these characters. Um, so something I see about um, about the beginning of World Trigger is, um, is something I used to see people uh, bring up a lot as a point of contention is, oh, uh, why do these three bullies keep coming back or whatever? Because you, you, you have to have the, like, typical bully characters to, like, you know, 
basically create some kind of conflict, which, you know, for the first chapter, I think is fine. But for some reason, they, they come back like right afterwards in the next chapter. And I think they come back even a third time. And for, granted, for not as long, but hey, that was so cool. <laughs> I, I, I just i i i, I don't think that i mean personally for me that's not like that's not like the worst part about you know the beginnings of world trigger but i do remember that being like a like a small point of contention with people when they were first getting into world triggers why why like why do these why do these people like they spend um like the ashihara spends way too much time on these three like they should be gone already and you know i, I find it kind of interesting that they came back as much as they did but i don't know that's just a weird little thing i saw i used to see people i mean i completely under, I, I completely understand that they blend together but but in in the second chapter uh he actually meets uh different bullies in the streets you know in, in his fish out of water chapter at the start uh that becomes his uh defining character moment uh beating up some bullies and people who mug him then breaking their bones then after Samus tells him that no 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 yuma you can't do that uh, then he just uh, beats them up without breaking the bones <laughs> it's character uh, development yeah i think people get frustrated with Bully. I don't think these bullies actually show up a whole lot because, like Cheddar says, it's like I think the bullies in the second chapter were different characters, and then the bullies from the first chapter they show up for like a cameo, and after like Osamu is revealed to be a border agent, and they're like shrinking away from class because they don't want a confrontation. But I don't remember them doing anything outside after that or appearing again after that i think people get frustrated with bully like characters in like these early chapters uh, just because they feel like such a cliche because you know bullies are yeah bullies. yeah there's not much more to them they're just there to serve a purpose to show that you know yuma is uh powerful and he takes no crap from anyone and, yeah uh, we we need to we need to give somebody for Yuma to beat up. Yeah, and also just in the scale of like you know we have these alien monsters uh, that are attacking cities, and so why not just focus on those? Why have these like way smaller scale small fry bullies to deal with when we can just focus on these monsters and fighting those? I think that's another. Thing that people might have felt, you know, this is why why waste time on this when we could just go straight to the monster. You know what's funnier? When they actually get to border, he invents a completely new trio of bullies uh, <laughs> yeah. that, that are constantly in the sea, right? Yeah. So I do really, so I do really think that Ashihara just loves this character archetype and and just wants to use it all the time. See, see those three, those three, I, I was okay with because they got, they all got like beaten in one panel each <laughs> so i was i was i was pretty okay with that plus that ended up that ended up being a lot more comedic so you know yeah they were like they felt more like joke characters from the start because we knew that yuma was gonna clown them and he did in one panel so like it didn't feel prolonged and it was amazing that like ah uh, geez 50 chapters later no it's gotta be more than that they return again and then like when Husey's becoming a trying to become a b-rank and Husey clowns them <laughs> yes it's just amazing <laughs> that, that was pretty good actually yeah that that's that's i tweeted about it. that's probably actually my favorite chapter of Full Trigger. <laughs> it's just it's just Husey beating everybody up 
It's pretty great. So, right. So, uh, uh, also something that happened in the uh, introduction arc was the uh, was the Miwa fight uh, when Chika was introduced. Yes, I think that's one. That's a point that uh, in that interview with Ashihara's editor, they they noted that was like a very interesting turning point in the series in terms of like characters, or at least because they mention that uh, they point out and they highlight that Yuma's line about that was a very interesting lie when Miwa tells him that only, you know, he and uh, Yonia are, are are confronting them when he has the snipers on his team, like, off in a distance, also gunning at them. And that added so much depth to his catchphrase at that point. You know, that's, that's a stupid lie catchphrase. Because then we kind of get, like, some more depth to, like, Yuma that, like, oh, he's intrigued by these guys, and he's more playful attitude towards them. So it takes what could have been in like an arrogant catchphrase, kind of like Ryoma Echizen's, uh, you still have a long ways to go, and puts a twist on it that makes it more interesting in a way. I, I, I do, I do also like, uh, um, the relationship between, um, Miwa and Yuma. Miwa is a really well-explored portrayal of a revenge-driven racist. Uh, at no point is his behavior justified, but it's understandable why he is the way he is. Uh, the, the, um, and later later on, we even have, when Yuma learns about... Uh, so it turns out that, that Miwa's sister, during the first, um, the first uh, neighbor invasion, was killed by a neighbor. Um... So uh, then Yuma offers to, um, you know, to have Replica assist with the search for the killer. And he turns him down anyway because he just won't accept help from a neighbor. Something I'm I'm missing, though, from World Triggered in its theme of race and xenophobia is is a kind of a Hody Jones type villain. Someone who who hates those who are different just because. Yeah, I I don't know if we have someone that purely expresses that viewpoint in World Trigger yet. Although I feel like there's got to be someone out there. I thought at first, like when the series was still running, that Keto would be that. But as the series developed, there seems to be more nuances into like what he's really after and how he really feels about neighbors. And it's definitely tied to Yuma's dad, Yuiga, and like what his relationship to him was. So I'm I'm interested in that, but yeah, we don't like this have this purely unjustifiable hatred against neighbors character yet, because Amiwa is the closest to that, but he has a reason, and even if his reason to hate and want to kill all neighbors is like you know that's not justified, like he does have a reason, and so we we don't have a character who doesn't have a reason who just hates for the sake of hatred. That would be an interesting character to introduce in the story. Mm, I, I guess speaking of Keto, um, so, so I guess one thing I really liked about early World Trigger is I really I kind I kind of like the mind games going on between different factions of Border, where basically like you have everybody going after like the Black Trigger and Jin constantly doing his best to try to like you know keep keep it out of Keto's hands, and I I, re- I really liked a lot of that and. You know, the sort of the it's sort of the lead up to Jin's fight with the rest of Miwa squad 
uh, which I think is probably the first fight in World Trigger that I, like, actually really got into, because there are so many great, like, surprise attacks, and it's so... It's like that. That's one thing I'll give uh, World Trigger credit for is I like a lot of the action because it's it's so chaotic, but you can still kind of follow it at the same time. Yeah, mm-hmm. uh, especially especially it's made clear that uh, so much thought is given uh, is given into it. Yeah, the strategizing is my favorite part of World Trigger fights. The thought that all the characters put into the battle and like what they're doing. No one is just blindly throwing attack at someone. They always have a strategy a reason for doing what they are doing and i find that really refreshing because in a lot of other series you'll have characters like just punching each other just like madly to really hard (laughs) run in and use all my strength and like wait maybe think about this first oh no i'm gonna punch him hard oh that's not working maybe i should punch him really hard okay that worked (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, and, and that's exactly why I love this manga. It, it encourages you to think, even in escapist uh, fight scenario. Even uh, And even silly little things like Jin asking uh, Chief Branch Window to uh, give him the order of the uh, Black Trigger's capture instead of Kido uh, end up being important tactical decisions that matter in the long run. So yeah. if you approach it with the right mindset... World Trigger manages to excite with uh, excite you with bureaucracy. How many more pieces of media could hope to do the same? We we used to joke, um, mo- mostly with the the first editor, Hope. We used to joke about you know like this series is great and the characters are great and the fights are great, but those board meetings are so good. Yeah, you get really excited when there's a board meeting chapter because. You see all the politics going around. I mean, you guys mentioned earlier the uh, the different factions. There's the Keto faction, the Shinoda faction, and then the Tomokoma faction. And they all have their different um, goals. And they all have their different alliances. And, like, how, how are they going to play off of each other? And, like, is this board member actually part of this faction? And, ah, uh, it's so good. And uh, b- by, the, by the time, if you were confused about the many plot elements in the previous arc, um, by, by the time of the Black Trigger capture arc, everything starts to become clear around here. Yeah, I feel that this is where World Trigger really starts hitting its stride in that like Black Trigger arc, where uh, Jin teams up with uh, Arashiyama Squad. Yes. Yeah, they mm-hmm. team up and they fight with uh, Kazuma Squad, uh, Tachikawa Squad, and Miwa Squad. And, like, that fight and all the tactics shown in that and just also Jin's overall goal in that fight. He beats every, he beats uh, Tachikawa and Kazuma with t- the Fuji, his black trigger. He establishes that he's super strong, super good with it. And then he goes to Border HQ and he's like, well, I just showed you what I can do. You could send Almo after me. You could have two S-Rings battle each other and potentially destroy the city. But how about this? I will give you guys the Fujin in exchange for letting Yuma join Tamakoma too. So, like, he had this, so his goal, like, was never for meeting to just, like, beat them in a fight. It was, like, to sh- prove a point and then have, uh, something to bargain with when he went to confront Kido. It was, like, such a good planning that I was, like, really impressed with. That, like, the fights are not the end goal in of themselves. It's what happens after the fights. 
that is what really matters. Mm. Also, like anytime Fujin is used, it's never not surprising or cool. Like it's it's always totally unexpected, which I love. Speaking of unexpected, um, this happens in in the first volume, but I think it really is the most shocking to me, at least during that um, that uh, black get the black trigger arc when you realize that Treon bodies aren't real. So like like in the first volume, uh, Osamu's fighting in the school and he loses his arm. And it's like, oh my god, his arm got cut off. And then later he, you know, uh, he bails out of his, his tree on body. But I think somebody gets decapitated in uh, the... Yes, K- Kikuchihara. Yes. And I remember seeing that big like, oh, snap. Because, and it happens over and over through the series. But every time it happens is just so surprising to me. And it takes a moment before I'm like, oh, no, 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 he's fine. He's just out of the battle. Yeah, that that was something that was something I was initially sort of sour on at first was it it, it felt like because everybody uh, the, the, I don't know I don't know how to put this in words. Like I, I felt like I felt like World Trigger for a while was a this might be harsh, but a bit toothless just because it felt like, oh well, you know, people are getting their limbs cut off, but it's okay. Their bodies aren't real. They'll yeah, just, they've they'll got just be that fine, safety but, net yeah. all the time. No, I, I totally hear that. It wasn't until the invasion arc where you know you you, you see people fighting against actual uh, actual like neighbors or whatnot, really strong ones too. That you know, like you see you see people like trying to bail out, but you know, like that that ability doesn't matter if you don't have the chance to do so. Yeah, and there's that in the invasion arc. Uh, Anadora kills a bunch of uh, operators in Border HQ. Uh, a lot of uh, people outside of that died. Uh, many more were injured and captured. A lot of this we didn't see, but like this clear idea that yeah, there's like a lot of like cost to these battles. Like uh, that you know there are consequences, and like you know Osamu bailing out of his trigger body towards the end there, and like actually getting hurt in his real body, and like when you see him like just lying in a pool of his own blood at the end of like chapter <laughs> 80 <laughs> it's like whoa oof, this is harsh oh my yeah. god um I, I think in a way because it's been set up that oh you know you just bail out everything's easy you know you're safe i think because at least for me because you get so used to that once you see osamu lying in a pile of his own blood it just no buddy what are you doing you know, it, it makes it hurt that much more. Yeah, it's kind of like the big deaths in One Piece. Because of just the sparsity, it, it, it's, it means so much more when uh, somebody actually gets hurt. Yeah. yeah. I was going to say it sort of reminds me of, um, without giving too much away, it, it kind of reminds me of like the few deaths we get in like Season 5 of Samurai Jack, honestly. That's a good point, because in previous seasons of Jack, you know, only robot characters really died and could get brutalized. But in season five, they let human characters, you know, really painfully die. It's pretty harsh to watch. Yeah, and it comes as a shock because, you know, up until then, you're like, oh, these are just robots. You're like, you know, like, they're not actual, like, human beings with emotions. And then it's like, oh... Oh no, a human just died. Wow, this actually means a lot. <laughs> hey, X9 had emotions, Colton. That that's true. <laughs> but no, yeah. 
so you know i that, that that's another thing too is i i kind of like how they use that bailing out system to their advantage like with Anna, what annalisa was mentioning with osamu bailing out out of his try on body during the last legs of the invasion arc that that some of the, the very last couple of chapters of that arc are really suspenseful and are really exciting and i really love them actually i think that's a good transition into talking about the invasion arc which, as we mentioned before, was half the series up to that point when it ended, because all the stuff before that was 42 chapters, and then the invasion arc is like chapters 44 to 85. So it was just as long. And in that way, you might consider it equivalent to Naruto's tuning exams or Bleach's Soul Society arc in terms of like this big arc that introduces a ton of new characters and has such high stakes and such like memorable moments. And so, why did we all think of the invasion arc? I know Colton considers it his favorite arc in the series so far. It's a, it's a good arc. <laughs> but my my favorite part of of the series is probably before that. It's it's Kazama versus Osama during the border enlistment arc. But uh, uh, but but uh, the future crossroads is the series at its most exciting, and I was at the edge of my seat every chapter. I. Um, I like the series following up on characterizations of background A-rank agents we've already introduced and introducing uh, B-ranks like uh, Hisato or Kuruma uh, that the uh, Mikimo squad would encounter later. And uh, Hisato's emotional arc uh, and Suwa's unit relationship with Kazama in general had a surprising amount of focus. And I, I really like this, uh, that, um, that World Trigger can focus on secondary characters so much and um, and make them seem like yeah they aren't just part of the background uh, they are real people with the, uh, with their own arcs yeah like the invasion arc it i mean it does so much for the story like clearly here's this huge threat it's a threat to everybody yada yada but like it does such a good job of both furthering the plot and expanding the world and expanding on all these characters so yeah, you get all these characters introduced. It never felt to me like like I so some series they just introduce characters at at some point somebody says like somebody had said um when you don't know what to do with a series just introduce new characters. I believe that was a line from Kubo when regarding uh, how he wrote Bleach. <laughs> oh dear, this explains so much. This explains so bloody much. But like, and, uh, I, I, I think that Kubo m- might have uh, um, might have punched himself. Uh, um, hey, why didn't think about trying bodies? I could uh, I could have people losing their arms uh, so often. <laughs> they always regrow them, except for Yamamoto for some reason. Even though he, he could have. Yeah, that 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 was one of my things. That's that's one of the things I don't really care for about Bleach, where it's like, you know, at first you introduce all these characters and they all look really cool and really interesting, but like. How how many of them will you see again? Well, that and and again, my memory my my memory's kind of hazy on Bleach, so I could be wrong in saying this, but it's like how many of them can actually get like any real development? Yeah. In contrast, I think World Trigger does that a lot better because yeah. we get introduced to a lot of new characters in the Invasion arc, like we get introduced to uh, Azuma, we get introduced to Sua Squad, and afterwards we get to know them even better during the b rank wars and 
their personalities continue to get developed and they continue to be relevant. Uh, all of them like reappear during the Galapur invasion and have a role there. So you feel like all of these characters matter and all these characters have their own stories that are continuing to get focus and like we're going to check back in on them as the series progresses. No one feels like they're just here for this moment and they'll probably be left behind. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I love that because, yeah, so you have all these characters that are introduced, but it doesn't feel like they're just being introduced to fill a hole so much. Yeah. It's established pretty early on. There are this many A-rank squads. There are this many B-rank squads. And then you've got a whole bunch of C-ranks, which, you know, sure, you could develop characters for that forever. But, you know, there's only so many, let's say, important characters in Border that he can introduce. So it's not just him. It doesn't feel like him just introducing characters to, you know, because he doesn't know what to do with the plot. It's him introducing characters because they all contribute to the plot. Yeah, and because he he has a plan for for most of them, at least. Yes. Everyone is, to a certain extent, important and part of the story. I think we can see seeds of that when he, when uh, Osama and Kido are talking, like when he's trying to negotiate Husei to join the team, and Kido mentions that yeah, we're actually going to have some upper tier B rank agents join our squad. So you're like, okay, so not only will we have some A rank characters go on this eventual uh, expedition to the neighborhood uh, arc, but we will have see some of the B rank characters we've gotten to know also come along. So no one's going to be left behind for not a whole lot of characters will be left behind for a long period of time. Like a lot of the characters that we've been built up to a really significant amount in this uh, B rank wars will continue to have a role this way forward, or at least that's the implication. So I really appreciated that Ashihara like kind of put that out there. That was like, Hey, you know, you won't just uh, see A-rank characters uh, alongside Tom Kuman 2 when they eventually do with this expedition. You will see some of these B-rank guys we've gotten to know. Yeah, and, and another thing, uh, he always brings them back. And I really appreciate that. Because, I mean, you can see these characters that have, you know, just like a little bit, like, like Sua Squad in this. Sua Squad has an important role in the invasion arc, basically to show how things work. Because I think Sue is the first one that gets cubed by a rabbit, if I'm not mistaken. So, so you see that happen, you're like, oh, snap, you know, like... And so he has an important role, but, like, I honestly didn't really expect to see him again. But then we see him in the Rank Wars, and it's just so fulfilling to see him and to learn more about these characters. And I... Thanks, Ashihara-sensei. And we see them them before uh, because they control the uh, the training room. Yeah, they fight with Enadora. They buy time for Shinoda to show up, and even when Shinoda shows up, he doesn't just win the fight. They still all have to work together to have this ploy to ultimately take Enadora down, which involves like Hisato also, you know, sacrificing like himself and a clever faint ploy. But even uh, but even before when uh, when uh, Kazama and Osamu ha- have the fight and uh, when when the C ranks uh, when the C ranks are enlisted, uh, they uh, they are in control of the of this training room. So um, it's it's really nice that they have this role. Um, they are introduced there, uh, and then um, when the after Equator invasion arc uh, starts going, uh, th- then we then we have a reprise of that. So th- that's really nice. Yeah, the the characters are are multi-purpose. They're not just, you know, single-use characters. Because yeah, you've you've got Sua controlling 
the uh, the training room for the C ranks. You've got um, you've got him being cute. You've got him in the rank. You know, like it's it's just it's really nice to see. Like you have a huge cast, but you'll see everybody multiple times doing many things and all supporting the story. And, and Hisato's emotional arc about uh, about his guilt, uh, ah, uh, it, it was so good. I think even just the small thing of like having the characters comment on the Rank Wars matches, like we get like some returning characters we've seen before, and they give their opinions on what's going on in a fight. I think that reveals a lot about their characters too, and keeps them just relevant in the story and like okay we we're seeing their expertise we're seeing their opinions on what they're watching and so that kind of lets us know about them and like how they would do things and how and their interactions with each other when they're you know just talking to each other so we kind of get a sense of like different like dynamics people have within border like different relationships just through that so shall we move on to rank walls shokageki no yuma <laughs> <laughs> Before that, I think just to kind of go over the rank wars, uh, no, I mean over the invasion a little more, uh, one thing I think was really strong about it is that in introducing the Aftercrator characters, we had some like really powerful, dangerous characters for the protagonist to go up against. And we had such really high stakes in terms of we need to make sure they do not capture Chica. We need to, you know, rescue as many people as we can and not let them capture uh, all this, as, as many people as they are. And so that whole, like, desperation is, like, what really makes that a lot of that arc memorable because we have a character like High Rain who's just incredibly powerful. He's like decimating other A Rain characters. Like Miwa, even Miwa fighting with the Fujin, you know, he's doing some damage, but like High Rain still really, High Rain's still pretty tactical and can get away. But you know, so we have Osamu here who's a B rank and we know that Osamu, you know, he's not the strongest guy, but like he's trying his hardest to rest, to keep Chika safe. He's just running away from the battle and he's uh, trying, he's doing as much as he can to keep uh, pursuers at bay. He pulls off some pretty cool moves. Yeah. And yeah, his desperate, you know, gambit, like the, when he realizes, like he, when he realizes that, you know, Hyrene's attacks only work on Treon bodies and he changes back into his normal body and like, you know, continues that way and just continues forward in his normal body, exposing himself to so much danger. That's just a really cool one. It's also just a really powerful one. Again, we talked about like when he gets struck by, I, I believe Mira's the one who attacked him and caused all those wounds. But yeah, and he just does a really clever thing, making them think that he has Chica's cube. But even though he's like uh, given it to uh, Replica, I believe, and it's like... Oh, he just left it there and, and just uh, took a normal uh, Tryon cube uh, that, that, he, uh, that he got from attacking, uh, from attacking High Rain. At the same time, Replica had already uh, en enacted his plan to like force the Africa trips to leave like within a minute, so they had no time to look for the cube. So they just had to flee without it. It was like he really put himself out there for this plan to work, and it like he he incurred the cost. He had to be, you know, he got really messed up and had to be hospitalized. But like it it worked, and you're like, man, just how much they had to go to get these guys out of here 
because even though we saw victories against them, like it still felt, you know, there were just too many powerful back trigger users. They they couldn't have won this without this lack stitch plan to just force them to retreat. It was such a such a great, such an exciting moment, but it was also so smart. Will Trigger is so clever. And it just it's it's such a heartbreaking moment. I mean, like it's really bittersweet because you have the success. Okay, they have to leave. Their ships are leaving. Good job, Re- Replica. Good sacrifice. Osamu, you know, poor Osamu is bleeding out on the ground. And then Replica gets cut in half. Or did he get cut in half earlier? And they had he got he gets cut in half earlier. And still keeps going. Yeah, he gets stuck on the ship. Yeah. I love you, Replica. Come back to us. Yeah. And so that's just another devastating blow because Yuma's lost, like, one of the only connections he had left to his father. And, like, one of the only people in his life from, like, his own world that he, you know, still that he still had around him. So it's like, you know, he's, he's not all alone because he has Osamu, he has Chika. But, like, it is just such a devastating blow. To have something that was like kind of his father's like legacy to him just disappear like that. It's yeah. I mean, the invasion arc like it ends in a win, but it's one of those at what cost sort of things. It is incredibly bittersweet, especially because even though they, after Krator loses their, they don't manage to capture Chica. They still captured like thirty two other trainees and they accomplished their other objectives in killing Anadora and abandoning Huse. So in a way they also succeeded at what they wanted to do. They just didn't get to accomplish like their best possible outcome, but they still in their own way succeeded. So it's also incredibly bittersweet in that respect that both sides won in protect and doing their objectives but they also lost in other ways and the and the border side might have lost harder in that in this case also a few border agents get actually killed but but the operators so so it doesn't really matter (laughs) (laughs) it certainly matters to the the press and the public Um, I uh, no, I I love that. Uh, I love that um, in the in the tally uh, given by uh, by Usami. I think at at, at the end, uh, she just says, um, "Well, if, uh, and uh, the, the total tally: um, uh, a few border agents were killed. All operators, yeah, all operators. Six, six deaths. All operators in the communication center. Serious injuries: four. Missing: thirty-two. All C-rank trainees." Zero civilian deaths, though. Yep, they protected the city. They protected civilians. But 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 it doesn't it doesn't matter to the press because they're still gonna they're still gonna find somebody to blame. Which that's probably one of my favorite moments in all of World Trigger is just oh yeah, it's just Osamu. Press conference? Yeah, it's just Osamu fighting back against the press and basically just yes. being like, yes. look, I I'm only doing what I can. Like I'm I'm not some hero. I'm I'm just a guy. I can only do what I can do. Like. I think that I think that was like you know Osamu had some really good moments you know before then, but I think that was the moment where I was like you know what he's a pretty cool guy I like him. <laughs> I'm yes. Not, I'm not a hero. Heroes give away their meat. I want all the meat. <laughs> 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 I'll just, Im- 
imagine Osama saying that. <laughs> Shoves it all in his mouth. What me? <laughs> I, I, I mean, honestly, I was I was kind of thinking about the same moment too. So, oh <laughs> uh, yeah, that's definitely one of Osamu's defining moments, and it's just so great. He takes a stand for himself, and he articulates himself so well. And yeah, it's just the way afterwards that uh, they're also able to spin what Osama is saying, like the information he lets loose, like, obviously, I'm going to get all the people who are captured back. That's the obvious thing to do. And then the princess Christians will wait, how can you do that? And then like, he goes quick thinking is like, uh, yes, actually, we are planning expeditions to the neighborhood. And then like, yeah, Osama is like, able to turn the situation where he was going to be turned into the scapegoat for all the losses that happened into a situation that is both protects his reputation and is advantageous to border. So it's just incredibly like really smart thinking and also just smart writing on Ashara's part. Yeah, I think they say something at one point where uh, a lot of border agents quit border after the invasion arc, but even more people are interested in signing up now. And then there, there was one reporter who basically was like, you know, we, we heard that, like, you used your trigger at school one time, and it's probably because of that, that information on, you know, your technology was leaked, and that's probably what caused this entire invasion, which I thought was a nice callback, because that almost did get him into a lot of trouble in the beginning. Yeah, and Osama's defense that, well, I had to protect them, I couldn't just let someone in front of me, you know, suffer just because it would be against the rules. Yeah, yeah. he says, uh, I'm not I'm not trying to explain things away. Even if I had known the information might leak, I would think I still would have used the trigger. That's how bad the situation was. Yeah. Even if there's a possibility of future, future casualties, that wouldn't be a reason to help, to abandon people who needed help right then. I love you, Osama. You're so good. Osama needs to be the next Captain America. <laughs> Captain uh, Mikado City. <laughs> I, I think that's what I really like about Osamu as a character is that he's he's clearly not a very strong character, but he still has the ability to do his job and he has the desire to help people. And he 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 does some pretty incredible things for you know an incredibly normal person. Honestly, yeah. They say at, at one point like, uh, and this is towards the current chapters of the series where he learns, spoilers for the next arc, uh, where he learns Spider as one of his sub-triggers. And they explain that most people, oh, I need to get my squad stronger. I'm going to get strong too. Whereas Osamu's is, I can't get strong. I'm not strong. So I'll get, I'll have my ace get stronger. I can help him get stronger. And it's just, it's so refreshing, you know? Yes. It's just a unique character arc for a protagonist in a Shonen Jump series where, you know, most protagonists are obsessed with being the best. Yeah, yeah, I'm going to be number one, which isn't bad at all, but it's nice to have a change. Yeah, the uh, the messages of World Trigger are, are in general really excellent. I, um, uh, I made a tweet a while ago, I, uh, I really love... Um, well, triggers messages like it takes uh, more than a week for effort to bear fruit. A weaker person holding off a stronger one is already a victory. And uh, maybe it's not good to be an isolationist dickhead and refugees aren't out to kill you and your family. Uh, 
you know, maybe you can work with some of them. <laughs> <laughs> I, I do like, I, on, on the not as positive side, I do also like, uh, and this happens during the B-Rank Wars, when Tachikawa says something about, it doesn't matter who wants it more. That's not going to win a battle. And I remember him saying that, and I got so mad because, but you try really hard, you should win, you know, but... That's not always how it works. I mean, there's also, like, he continues on saying, you know, just because you want it a lot, that doesn't mean that you are, should have the right to win because you don't know how hard the other pe- people you're fighting against have worked in order to get this far and how hard they want it. Something to that effect that was like, yeah, I mean, in in these rank wars and also like just in general, like in life, like everyone is is working their ass off in order to achieve their dreams and succeed. And sometimes when you're competing against someone else in order to achieve that dream, it doesn't come down to like who wants it more. It comes down to like who put in the most effort and who is achieving the most results. Yeah, World Trigger is very is very realistic about there being you know no shortcuts to 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 progress you know not everything is that easy and i I really respect it for it honestly Mm -hmm. yeah it it also really shows that um yeah ashihara really does care about all his character's feelings uh that no we're we're not gonna just have an unimportant opponent that that uh, that are just someone to overcome by uh by tamakoma uh, we we won't learn the motives or anything. Uh, no, they want to advance uh, just as much as uh, as uh, Osama's bunch, and they have good reasons for it. Yeah, everybody has their reasons, and it's it's good. It's nice. World Trigger is the best sports manga shown in Japan. On that subject, we should talk about the B Rank Wars, which is structured a lot like a sports tournament arc in a sports manga, which I feel is World Trigger's strength. Personally, I really love the B Rank Wars, and it might be my favorite arc in the series because I love how Ashihara is able to develop each team's like what uh, goals, like what they are fighting for in these matches and also what their strengths are and like how these fights end up going about in terms of the strategies at play and how the environment works in favor of some teams uh, to the detriment of other teams and just all of that interplay. And it's, it's very much like a sports narrative in like you, uh, another sports, other ma- sports manga, and I think that's just so unique how Ashihara is able to blend a battle series with a sports series like that, and I think that's like what really sets World Trigger apart as a battle shonen series. Yeah, I, I I agree for sure. So, uh, Colton, you mentioned that you didn't enjoy the commentaries as much, though. Oh man, okay, so this is this is around the point where. I I dropped reading World Trigger weekly because I you know upon rereading I I don't want to say the entirety of the B Rank Wars because it's te- the arc technically isn't over unfortunately but you know upon rereading the entirety of what we've gotten of the B Rank War arc so far I I like it more than I initially did and I think really the only thing that has kept me from fully enjoying it is. 
I don't know. I might. I feel like I'm probably in the wrong here, but I, I understand the need for some commentary on on these um, on these battles. I think they have their place, but there was just a point in, um, in my experience reading World Trigger Weekly where there are just some chapters where it's just mostly you know just talking strategy and talking about you know. Uh, basically recapping battles in a way where they like basically the commentators talk about basically talking about their strategy what they could have done what they should have done what their strengths and weaknesses are and I don't know like I feel like to me it's not done in a way that keeps my attention I feel like it's done in a way where it's for me it's kind of a slog to read like there are just some there are some points where it's like I get it this has its place but there there are some points where I'm like, I wish Ashihara would do more showing than telling. But again, I also know it has its place, so I'm I'm a little conflicted. I can't I'm not gonna say, oh, well Ashihara should just cut this out entirely, but I guess I wish there there would be less of that. I don't know. I don't know if that's just me being impatient or I don't know. I really like those post battle commentary chapters where they like all the commentators are just like talking about what happened in the match and, you know, reflecting on what happened and what could have gone differently. Because it to me, it's like interesting to like think back and see, oh, you know, it's kind of like, you know, when you're playing a game like chess and you're like, oh, if you if I did this, ah, things would have gone so much more differently. I, I should have taken this piece. And so from that mindset, when I'm reading these chapters and I'm thinking about, oh, I see. So I, and so I could, they could have done this, huh? Or like, it, or maybe if it, even if it isn't just so obvious to the reader that they could have done something when these commentary characters explain it in that way, you kind of, think about what the character's strengths are and what their goals in the match were and like how they might have made a mistake that caused them to mess up or cause something unexpected to happen. And it makes, and for me, it makes me interested in, okay, how are they going to learn from this? And how would this battle change if they were to do it differently? And to me, like where the Rancors are heading in, where it just left off, where they're about to you know, rematch with teams they have fought against before, that's to me where I think the real payoff of, like, that post-battle commentary stuff will come in because we'll have characters having learned from what their mistakes were and we'll see that in action. And so I'm, that's what I'm really looking forward to when World Trigger returns. And I feel like having those post-battle commentaries is just really useful to just lay it out there. You know, this is what was going on with this team, and this is what could be improved on. And in a way that, you know, it might not be totally obvious when you're just reading the battle. Because I feel like you're reading the battle, like, you take, you take things at face value. But those post-battle commentaries, I think, makes you think about it in a different way. And to me, that's very interesting. And again, th- that's that's totally fair, but... Again, I just, if for some reason, I th- those were the parts where I just lost interest. Um, it wasn't as bad reading it, you know, in chunks. I, I could just kind of, I mean, I'll be honest, I mostly just kind of skimmed through those because there were some points where it's like, I, I understand, you know, what, what point you're getting at here. Like, I kind of, th- there were just some points where I felt like I kind of understood the mechanics of what was going on without having to read pages and pages of text. But I, that's probably just me, though. I I completely get you on the parts that they were repeating stuff from the commentaries um, in the battle itself. 
but I, I would be on uh, Loom's side that I love those strategy talks. I uh, those were some of my favorite parts of the uh, of these arcs. Yeah, I, I like I, I understand where where you're getting from, and I I don't fully agree, but mm-hmm. I kind of do. But I I do I guess overall I I do like him. So okay. you know I I, I figured I was gonna be really the only one who couldn't be bothered (laughs) again that's probably just mostly my impatience um because i'm mostly just like i just want to see the battles and how they play out (laughs) i i think i mean because you know we all read them chapter to chapter i do think coming back and reading the volume later it is a lot stronger when you get the whole battle as one yeah i think that's fair i mean i think another thing that works for me about those commentaries is just the character interactions, like seeing the opinions of like characters we've seen before, and we know how they fight and what their thoughts are, and also just some of the you know humorous moments they can sneak into when they are bantering with each other. I don't remember which character is exactly involved, but there's an exchange that goes like one character ex- is explaining like oh h- how something uh, went wrong, and then like the other uh, commentator guy is like hey uh, she already knew this she was just asking you for the sake of the commentary. He was like <laughs> <Yes>. really, <laughs> and then she, and then the the per- person who was like asking Kristen was like you didn't need to tell him that. <laughs> <laughs> what what battle was that? Oh, that was. So I don't good. remember. I remember Jin. I think is the one who is telling the other guy that, like, you know, whoever it was already knew. I feel like that was. Uh, I think that was after the Nasu Squad fight. Actually, yeah, but that was a great exchange that I just remembered. I think one of, like there are so many good points in the um, Rank Wars. Like overall, like I I don't like tournament arcs. Really. I think they, they tend to be boring. I think they go on too long. I think they're just dragging stuff. And if I were to just think about the rank wars in World Trigger, I'd be against it. Because they do go from volume like 10 or 11, and they're still going at volume uh, 19. It is half the series at this so point. It's, it's half the series, so it, it's one of these things that's just like... Get on with it. But at the same time, you have the second, you have the small-scale invasion arc in the middle of this. And there's nothing that I could be like, oh, well, just cut out this part. Because everything works to expand on the characters, to, you know, further the plot. It, I'm really torn. Like, I, I love the Rank Wars, but just as a concept, I hate the rank war. <laughs> I, I, I think that's what makes the B-rank war arc work, is that it's not just a straight tournament arc, and that there there are other like subplots going on. Like, you know, right in the middle of the B-rank wars, you know, you, you basically have, you know, everyone up top at border trying to figure out, you know, how to go about this upcoming expedition to uh, Afto Crater and... You know, them basically uh, interrogating Enadora, and then you have uh, Hiusei deciding what he wants to do, and, you know, ev- everything involving the neighbors, I think, is um, is really interesting, and I think, you know, if, if you're if you're not as, as into the B-rank war stuff, then you at least have that stuff to kind of look forward to whenever Ashihara decides to focus on that stuff. Yeah, and then, and then we have uh, basically Osama's journey to uh, to becoming to becoming a better captain and and a better asset to his team, uh, yeah. which uh, I, I love that evolution. I, I especially 
like the... I, don't get me wrong, I love the spider tactics, but also I especially like the assistance Tachikawa squad g gives him. Uh, by, you know, Izumi giving some tips, and then uh, he's the weakest member of our squad, just fi fight him, uh, win beat him a hundred times, and then I'll teach you some stuff. Yeah, yeah. And I love... <laughs> Yuiga is great. <laughs> he's so good! I... Oh, I love him. He's 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 terrible, <laughs> yeah, but that makes him great. And I, I I love how when they introduce him, he's just like, oh no, I don't want to do this. Oh god! And then like he beats Osamu, you know, because even though he basically got into an A rank squad on a favor, you know, yeah, um, he has like, some. Skill. He's not weak. He's just weaker than every other A rank person. But I just love how he's all like, ha ha ha! I thought you could take me up. Oh, I'm so great. Like, <laughs> Oh, you're so awful. I love you. <laughs> uh, I will always be there to train my precious Kohai. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Someone's like, okay, whatever, buddy. Yeah, I mean, he actually gets disappointed when Asamu uh, loses that uh, in the match with uh, yeah, Ninomiya, uh, Azuma, and... Is it just Ninomiya? Oh, Kageyura. Yeah. In, that ma in the match when Azuma snipes him out. Yeah. Oh, man. Which is such... A cool move. Like, I, I love that Ashihara doesn't shy away from destroying his main characters because Osama gets taken out so fast. He just gets blown And even away. Yuma kind of struggles a little bit, which honestly, after seeing him just kind of win most of his battles for so long was kind of nice to see. Yeah, like, I like Yuma, but I think him being so strong is kind of a detriment to his character development. Yeah. Because he doesn't have those, like... A lot of the other characters will have those kind of like, you know, someone needs to get stronger, maybe not physically, but, you know, tactically, Chica has to get over, you know, being able to shoot people. And, you know, like the super strong characters, I think, are often harder to develop. Like Jin doesn't develop that much. Yeah. You know? Jin is basically interesting because of the responsibility that uh, he has to bear on his shoulders but because of his side effect. Mm -hmm. And yeah. uh, Yuma, Yuma is interesting because... Well, basically because he uh, he's loyal to Osamu and he is slowly dying, so Osamu and Chika have to give him a goal to, um, so, so that he has something to live for. Jin, at least compared to Yuma, has a lot of charisma, I feel like. Yeah, and he also has this sense of guilt too that we kind of see ex explored, like when he talks about when he talks to Asamu, uh, when Asamu is trying to invite him to join Tanokuma Two, and Jin's like, "No, I got things to do." But he apologized to Asamu because, like, you know, Asamu, it's not your fault uh, for things that happen in the evasion. You know, it's mine because, like, I saw all the possible outcomes that could have happened, and I intentionally steered things in a direction that would you know, lead to the least amount of civilian casualties, but it came at a great cost. Like, Replica is gone now, and you had to suffer a lot of damage, so I'm really sorry about that. So, Jin puts up, like, this front of, like, being super easygoing and shipper, but, like, I think he really is masking a lot of, like, stress and insecurity about having the responsibility to you know see the future and you know the choices he has made and you know thinking about did i make the right choice here yeah, yeah it, it's the moments of quote unquote weakness that i think both uh yuma and Jin really are developed well like early on i think it's shortly after Jin gives up fujin 
you see him laying in his bed and I think he says something like, did I do the right thing? Like, or something like I had to do this, but you can tell he's not happy with this. And he always has kind of that kind of smug, happy face on. So it's, it's really, it's nice to see those moments because yeah, you're not going to really develop a super strong character easily by, oh, we're just going to battle it out. So like when Yuma kind of loses, he develops so much more than when he just keeps winning. And I, so I really appreciate that. Jin is also probably the best example of a future side character I've seen in fiction. Uh, so we get the sense that his side effect is so non-specific and brittle due to the diverging future crossroads that are so unpredictable that he may not know exactly what to do. And at the same time, it introduces many dangers and set up character arcs so well, like in the premonition of the possibility of Osama's death and... Uh, Miwa coming to save him because uh, 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 you guys remember that, that we had it all the time looming over us uh, when we uh, when we had the large scale invasion. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. and that yeah that's brought up super early. And above all else, it's it's great that uh, his ability requires a lot of thought from him. It, it it's not just uh, oh I know what's going to happen and uh, we should keep it keep it in mind like um, let's say uh, fa- fairy tales shall. Uh, and it it encourages more tactical thought instead of being a plot shortcut or the easy way out. It also helps that Jin sometimes seems going in a direction that Jin didn't foresee, because sometimes people change the future and that changes like what he sees. Like when uh, Jin tells Karasuma that, like, uh, you know, you are going to get cut down in this battle it, it, during the first invasion. So, like, when Cross was fighting Hyrian, he's like, you know, I'm going to do my best to to not let Jin's prediction come to pass and, like, defeat Hyrian and not let him get to Asamu. And, like, he doesn't succeed, but whatever he did, it changes the future slightly. And Jin is like, whoa, what did you do? And then uh, it also in the uh, Galapula invasion, there are two instances of something that go happening that Jin did not expect. First is when uh, Yotaro goes off to see Huse. <laughs> yeah. And he's Yotaro like... Yotaro MVP. Yeah. And Jin is like, "What? you're going there? Crap. I gotta change plans. And also, because he told Kachikawa before the before the Galapu invasion that he would get cut down... And so Tachikawa's like, well, okay. Well, I'll also <laughs> fail Jin for... T- yeah. yeah. <laughs> and so he and Konami, like, have intentionally make it come through in their battle with a Gatlin. And it's like, ah, oh, it's super it's awesome. so good. Yeah, that, that, was, that, was, that was pretty surprising, honestly, so... Yeah, I, I do appreciate... I, I think Jin's ability is kind of cheaty because, I mean, any future sight thing is a little cheaty but i love how how it's nerfed by here are x number of possibilities it can go anyway see that's the thing i i appreciate it because it should be for lack of a better word it should be a lot more hacks and it should be so much more overpowered than it actually is like it should be a lot more of a shortcut but it kind of isn't yeah it's shackled down quite a bit yeah, but but it makes sense since it's even if he is a great tactician, it's uh, not easy when you have so many different possibilities uh, that could happen. Yeah. Uh, so, um, in my opinion, when you plan to make a future vision character, Jin is one of the best examples to go. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. Use him as your standard. Uh, so I, I want to talk about uh, one of the later B rank battles. 
when they're going against OG Squad. Andy Coma. Yeah, yeah, and uh, Chica's Chica's little hop. Oh, <laughs> my <laughs> favorite move! It's one of the greatest moves in the entire series, and it's just so simple. And that top. I like. I don't know anybody that that read that and was like, whatever. Everybody I've talked to about that has just been like, oh, oh my god, <laughs> I love it so much. It's so good, and it's. It's not some crazy, you know, like, oh, and we all planned this ahead of time. It's just her thinking on the fly. They can't see these. I can trick them. I like the little power move she has with Osamu. <laughs> oh, man. Team up, man. Th- that honestly was pretty amazing. Um, I uh, Can I also just say uh, Ikuma is the funniest character <laughs> in World Trigger? <laughs> <laughs> He's so... So amazing. I, I mean, like, he comes in, you're like, this guy's a weirdo. And, like, half a chapter later, you're like, this guy's the best weirdo. All of his uh, jokes and um, um, his punchlines always hinge on, like, these, like, anti-climaxes. Like, uh, what was it? Where um, where I, I think he's battling against Yuma. And he's all like, yeah, I'm going to cut you down. Wait, nope, nope. This isn't, this isn't supposed to happen. Nope, stop. You're not supposed to be hitting me. Oh, well, I guess I give up. <laughs> I love that. Why is he always looking into the camera when he wins? (laughs) (laughs) I love how his whole squad is a bunch of goofballs. In this because in the sequence where all the teams are like planning their strategies for the upcoming match, his team is just talking about what's going to be on the lunch menu the next day, and Ikoma's like, "Yeah, it's eggplant curry. It's going to be super yummy." And and it also speaks so much about uh, about the strengths uh, since um, with. Actually, having uh, next to no prep to to the rank battles, they are still ranked number three. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and uh, they don't take this seriously at all. I love yeah, this. Beasts. Uh, yeah, just hey, what are you gonna have for lunch? Well, you know, <laughs> they're so. It... Oh, uh, Chica is so cute, and uh, Mario, you are cute too. <laughs> yeah, oh, that's a great exchange. I really love how they're all, how they're juxtaposed to uh, against the other two teams. That was honestly pretty great. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was. I mean, there are things I love about every single B rank match, but that one was just so good. Oh, I, I, Ikoma could be in like anything, I think, and you just be like, "Oh, this is great!" Automatically, pretty much. Yeah, that's, that's <laughs> how I felt. <laughs> He's the character I want to see again the most. I'm sure we will. I mean, considering he's one of the top ranked B uh, ranked characters. Yeah, th- that that entire that entire match is pretty good, though. Hmm. Do we want to talk about any other specific matches, or talk about the Galapula invasion? Let's talk about the invasion. Yeah, that was a part of the story I wasn't I wasn't expecting. That was that 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 was an interesting, neat little like subplot again. Like I mentioned earlier, kind of going on amongst the B rank wars. That I think kept the uh, that I think kept the arc interesting. It was a good interruption because it came just at a good point in the story where you know it's it's pretty much the midway point uh, in the rank wars for Tamakoma too because they just had this devastating loss against uh, Ninomiya Squad Kagura Squad, 
and Ozma Squad, and then they're like really having to retool their strategy and think about, okay, how can we be build a stronger team? Asama has to think about, okay, what can I do as their cap, as the captain of this team, in order to support my teammates better? Uh, he, you know, they're thinking about who they should get as another member, an, another attacker to support Yuma. And so, right as they're thinking about all of this, you know, we have this Galapool invasion that kind of is a nice break from the Rank Wars, which we've been like following for about a year of serialization at that point. And so, we spend like some time in, in this Galapool invasion and we learn some new details about the about the neighborhood, because we learned that Aftokrator has, like, some colonies. And they mention there's one other besides Galapula that, you know, they send Tryon soldiers to help Galapulia, but we don't see any of their human members. Yeah, it starts with an R, like Rhoda something something something. Uh, Rhoda Cronin. Rhoda Cronin, yeah. Uh, I I do love that uh, we talked about uh, a lot about strategy in World Trigger, but but uh, I do love this one little thing that uh, Galapola plans just to um, just to invade the headquarters and just do uh, a little bit of damage uh, so that uh, so that uh, Meden so that Earth doesn't come um, after them, but uh, Eftocrator still instead. Yeah, yeah, I I, I love. It kind of, in a way, mirrors the factions in Border itself. Mm-hmm. I mean, not exactly, but yeah, you have, okay, we are kind of a sovereign state, or, you know, like, like we we bow down to uh, Afto, and, but, you know, we'll do their bidding on our terms. Yeah, we're not going to become their scapegoats. We're not going to make Meaden come after us. We're just going to, we're going to fulfill the mission that I've after Kator assigned us, but we're not going to do anything beyond that that would make us a target. Because we are not going to take their crap for them. And I really like that. I really like that we had, like, this, like, faction that is technically aligned with After Kator, but is very hostile towards them. And when we see, like, flashbacks later on to, like, when After Kator invaded Galapoya and kind of made it their colony from a uh, Reggie's perspective and it's like okay so there's some bad blood between these two like nations here and you know they have no choice but to obey uh, after Kator's orders but like they are not on their side and there's like and it also like opens up like more questions about okay these uh, the wars going on in the neighborhood like it seems there are more factions we're not even realizing and there are there's like it's even more complicated uh circumstances because there's so much so much politics within the neighborhood itself we aren't privy to but we kind of get a glimpse of them here through galapola yeah and it, it, it it's interesting because of the relationship you see between the two countries uh when they don't succeed in their mission it's not a oh no our world's going to be destroyed it's well, we tried. I guess we'll try again. Yeah, I mean, they can't go home until they succeed the mission. And they they mentioned that, okay, we have a few more days until that we can stay here before, you know, our, our Galapula is out of the meeting's orbit. We have to think this over, figure out what we, we got to do. And so, like, I think there's going to be a second attack from them because that's what Gatlin was saying. Like, that he has need some time to think it over. 
but like yeah it's it's very interesting to see like okay uh they're they're far away from us so this this one failure is not gonna matter so long as we ultimately succeed in the end so let's think about this a little bit and that was very interesting to me so i'm I'm very interested to see like what's gonna come out of when galapola galapola like makes their counterattack or like their their second attempt to take out the expedition ship Come back, Ashihara Sensei. <laughs> <laughs> One more thing I like about this arc is the Husei and Jin moment. We actually have another clever bit of strategy of Jin offering, you know, I I can do you a favor. I can return your trigger, or if if I win, uh, you'll have to um you'll have to do me a favor and uh, presumably join Tamakoma too. Uh, but but that then um he actually. Um, circumstances are manipulated in such a way that that Husei actually has to ask to join Tamakoma too. So, uh, so in in the end, uh, in the end, Jin still wins despite yeah. losing uh, losing the bet. <laughs> <laughs> oh, like that was a good use of like that Jin's foresight to like you know, like he loses the bet, but he actually wins in the end. It's so good. <laughs> Oh, and it makes sense for Husei to accept the deal on those terms, too. Because, like, you know, he just wants to get back to after Kator to prevent his master from getting sacrificed. So, like, he has so he has a reason to work with Order until they get to after Kator. And I like how, during the negotiation, they're discussing it on those terms. Like, Husei's going to be a member of our team until we get to after Kator. And neither Kido and Asano, like, mentioned beyond that because they don't know. And I like how there was talk put into that on both sides that they're what they were, the the what they were trying to negotiate and how they were trying to and how Asamu in particular was trying to convince Kido to allow this thing that is uh, ostensibly or at least overtly it seems only beneficial to Tamakoma too to have Husey on their team, but the case he makes to sell it as okay. This will be beneficial for Border too, but it also gives Kido an opportunity to achieve his objective, which is just securing Chika for the ship. And and he actually uses Netsuki's uh, political tactics uh, by planting uh, Rindo so that he says the um, the argument against bringing Husei so that uh, just so that uh, Osamu has a lead into to say his ca- counter argument. Yeah, like I. I... I, I love seeing kind of that payoff. Like, oh, well, you did this to me. I can learn. I can learn. So. Oh, that's so satisfying. That's like another one of my favorite moments in the series. Like that entire conversation, that negotiation between Asano and Kido. Because all the word games, all the like politics involved in that one conversation as both of them are trying to achieve their own ends and trying to manipulate the other and like how they both walk away getting what they want is just so good it's so i there was a a tag a number of years ago at this point (laughs) on twitter that i i think it was uh osamu plus 10 years and so it was a bunch of uh 25 year old osamu and almost all the versions i saw weren't him like leading a, a great squad it was him leading border they're like, yeah, he's going to take over for Keto because look how good he is at this. And he's 15 years old. You know, I never even really considered that possibility. But now that you say that, it's just kind of like, a, wow, duh, how, how, how have I never seen this? <laughs> 
It'll be really interesting if Kido turns out to have been an Asamu-like character in his past. Like, when he yes. was, like, more of a field agent, and he might have been like Asamu, and that he wasn't a very capable fighter, but he was a great strategist and a really good leader. I could see that. And so that's why he's leader of Borage Q now. Osamu will be a great politician. He's already sweaty enough. <laughs> but man i think we caught up on our thoughts of basically every arc on unless you guys have some straight thoughts on b-rank wars or the galapola stuff i think we might have brought it up earlier but I, i really do just appreciate the journey that osamu and rest of his group take just to like improve their strategy and to improve their individual strengths uh the, the whole thing about him incorporating spider in his tactics uh during the b rank wars is it it really reminded me of like later in my hero academia where midoriya uh decides oh hey what if i used uh you know a one for all uh in my legs or whatever it's like duh like that's such a great idea for a power-up and i think yeah, yeah. And, and it's one of those like, well, this is kind of obvious. How did I not think about it? You know, like yeah, it's oh, it's yeah. it's such a it, it's such a great fit for Osamu, and I I really like how even if he's taken out, he's still kind of there in spirit, helping his team a little bit. Yeah, he's still supporting. Like you know, his his new ability just makes Yuma stronger as well, which I think is um, a great contribution to his abilities as well. And, you know, the whole thing about Chica using lead bullets, like, that's another, like, duh, how did, she, how did we not figure this out before? Like, that's that's such a great, like, I think that really, that ability really fits her. Yeah. I, like, w- wouldn't have thought that uh, that uh, this can be combined with uh, with sniper triggers, but, but yeah, it, it kind of makes sense, especially for Chica. And it makes for a great team formation, uh, which we essentially see in the uh, Kakizaki and um, and uh, Katori squad match, uh, uh, which, which, is, which is great. Yeah, I, I just love that shift Osama makes from wanting to make himself stronger to make his team stronger, and... Like, the results that pay off of that in that match with Kakizaki and Katori. And also, I like... We don't... We didn't talk about Chika's arc a whole lot, but I also like her arc where she's, like... She's so squeamish about killing people. Really just hurting people in general, I guess. Yeah, hurting people. Mm. Yeah, and she has... Because she's carrying so much guilt because she believes that just by existing, she's hurt people because people... Because uh, neighbors have gone after her for, like, her large try-on. So people close to her have gotten hurt because of that. And so, like, seeing her kind of learn to value herself is was an incredibly interesting character arc. Like, that scene where Usami first tells Reiji that, you know, they want to make Chika start valuing herself. And then Reiji is, like, taking the zen. And then he, you know, goes to talk to Chika and, like, tries to reinforce that lesson to her. That, you know, you need to protect yourself above all else. That was an amazing scene. Chica, I I just like how her arc in Boat in that she starts to learn to value herself more, but also the way in which she is able to kind of slowly start overcoming the mental block of hers that she can't kill people by, like, using the strategy that simulate what she is afraid of like people exploding and stuff like that idea that people are 
getting destroyed like that through the le- using the lead bullets, which don't like look like people are getting hurt that much, but it is such an effective strategy. I like how she's overcome the way in which she's overcome that and like how she was able to do that is through like just making you know good connections and friends with other uh, sniper characters who were able to teach her that uh like what's his name the guy emma. from uh Nino Yuzuru. emma user emma yeah so i really like that and yeah i just I just in general think that it's going in a great direction with it. I like because like, she's also become more assertive and like more willing to take risks through the Rancor matches. Because you know before like during the match with uh, Ninomiya Kakiyama squad, like when Asamu gets taken out, she you know tries to shoot in at in the building to you know do her part. Uh, like because she sees that. Asama's taken out and she wants, she's like, okay, I need to do something now. She, temporarily, she's like able to like get over her block and like just go for it. And even though it, she didn't like end up hitting anyone, like that shows an effort on her part to like improve as well. That I'm, that's like really endearing. It's like, you know, oh man. And so, so it's really satisfying then when she does use the lead bullets later and she like, it feels like, yeah, there's just, so much progress that everyone in Tamakoma 2 is making to become a better team and like overcome their personal weaknesses to like become stronger as a unit. I, I find it interesting how like, yeah, the, the lead bullets are a great solution to, to her mental block, but it's really mostly a short term thing because at some point she is she, like, you know, it, it helps, it helps her team more. Sure. But she still, she still hasn't completely gotten over her mental block which I th- still think is kind of interesting. It's again, it's more of a short ter- a short-term solution than it is a long-term solution, which I think is pretty interesting. Essentially, the goal is to afford Osama and Chika to eventually um, be able to score points on their own. Both Osama and Chika essentially take after Yuma in the theme of self-sufficiency in the plot threads. They don't want to completely rely on Yuma in battle, and at the same time, uh, Chika has to learn to rely on others, since, uh, as, uh, as Sid has mentioned, she doesn't value her life, and thinks it's unfair that everyone is getting kidnapped by neighbors uh, but herself. Chika is brilliant. I love how far she's come, I love the character arc Ashihara's constructed for her, and I love that both Osamu and Chika represent different kinds of weakness that they need to overcome. In the case of Osamu, it's physical, and in Chika's case, it's psychological. I kind of like how everybody in Tamakoma 2 is sort of coming terms to... is is kind of is kind of battled with this, like, internal conflict of... Basically, they're all battling with their own sort of self-worth. I mean, you know, obviously, that's that's Chika's entire character is... You know, she feels guilty because she feels like she's the reason that, you know, people around her get hurt. So she doesn't really value herself that much. And, you know, with Osamu, he, you know, he he's constantly struggling with trying to be, you know, an asset to his team. And, you know, there are times where that gets him down. And then even Yuma, where, you know, at one point in the very beginning, you know, there was a point in his life where he didn't really feel like he had much purpose and he just figured, well, I might as well, like, there's nothing for me to look forward to in life. Like, why why keep living? Which I think is a very, like, uh, very uh, understated, um, I guess, facet of his character. Yeah, he's kind of a tragic hero that way. And Chika essentially gives uh, 
both uh, both him and Osamu the shonen motivation for uh, for the two main characters to build a team around. And uh, she is all this while being a character type that Ashihara claims he's not good at writing in the first place. And still she she's become one of the most compelling characters in the series for me. So this takes one hell, uh, one hell of a good storyteller. I think that's another really impressive thing about World Trigger is that, you know, the, like, Chika is the reason they formed their team, but, like, you know, uh, Chika still has to overcome certain mental blocks, and, you know, she's 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 not she's still like she's getting better but she's still not the most capable fighter compared to a lot of other people in border but she also still doesn't feel like a weak character like she's a trying cannon yeah (laughs) they like you know they they form the team around her and at first they feel the need to protect her but she doesn't always need to be protected which i think is a great thing about a lot of the female characters in world trigger which is also which is very refreshing because that's that's something I personally always look for look for in a, in a jump series is how well developed are the female characters and can they hold their own in the fight and I think World Trigger does a great job of that. Do you remember how Chica blows up the wall of the border headquarters and then? <laughs> And and then she essentially becomes Kanuta's surrogate daughter. Yes! She's like, oh, I'm so sorry. It's like, it's okay, don't worry. She's like, it's okay, don't worry. (laughs) Satori will pay for everything. (laughs) That that was actually pretty cute. (laughs) But but I, I think that's about it for most of the arcs, though, right? I think so. Yeah, I, th- I think we've moved moved on to character discussions. Uh, yeah, uh, for for a while now. And are there any other characters people want to talk about? I want to kind of bring up Katora and like how I like her. Oh, what I her role in the story has become because she has become like a mentor figure for Asamu, and like in the B rank words, we uh, like uh, when Asamu's you know. Trying to learn Spider, and we learn details that Katora was once kind of like Osamu, and that she doesn't have a lot of try on, so she's not like a really powerful attacker. But she learned how to use her abilities and ways through a lot of hard work and effort and training, in, in order to become like the ace of our Ashiyama squad. And so, to me, that really recontextualizes like how she's treated Asamu earlier in the series because it's it's like she sees a lot of her, herself and like who she was when she started out in him and so that's why she's both frustrated in him but also you know willing to take a chance on him but she's like first you know you gotta Asamu you gotta like learn a little bit of humility and you gotta learn like to not uh not expect to become the best so quickly because it takes a lot of time. And like she tells him the story about how uh, Nino Mia asked for, you know, training from uh, who was it? I think it was Azumi. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, even though, you know, at that point, you know, Mia was already, you know, super skilled because, you know, Mia recognized his own weaknesses and ne- knew he needed to get help with them. And so, like, that was a really interesting scene to me that was like, okay, so, like, look, even the people who are, like, at the top of B-Rank, you know, even they have to ask for help. And even they are continually working hard to improve themselves. And you're not going to get there. You're not going to be the best without 
putting uh, putting in enough effort and like you're starting out by asking you're like you're trying but you're like you need to not expect so much uh so fast you need to like take it so you also need to you know be, uh, really focus on the learning more than the results right now she's definitely proud of being an a rank yeah I, I like that she's she's this type of character that's like yeah, she's a very proud character, but once you find out that, yeah, that she used to be, you know, on the weaker side, but she's worked so hard to become an ace, you're like, oh, okay, I guess she deserves that attitude a little bit. It makes sense that she wants so much respect, and it makes sense that if Osama reminds her of her past, it, ma- um, that it makes sense that she's so harsh on Osama. Yeah, that actually makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. Like, even her gag of, like, you know, wanting, like, uh, respect and uh, a- adulation from other, from other people, especially people, like, higher up than her, like, is, is really made more interesting by that revelation. Because it's like, oh, because she wants, like, people to recognize her efforts, too. And so that's why she also is getting a jealous when it seems like Asamu is getting more praise than her at times. <laughs> Like from like when it seems like he's getting more attention from Kamasuma. <laughs> 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 oh, I love that. <laughs> and of course, that scene where Kanoe uh, blows her off, even though like she's lower ranked there, and that breaks her heart. <laughs> that was funny. But yeah, so I think she's really Sekitora uh, is really interesting too. I'm looking forward to seeing like where her role in the story will go forward as well, both in terms of, like, the dynamic she has with Asano, but also her as her own character. But, like, are there any other characters you guys want to talk about? Because there there are so many characters in World Trigger that I think are really interesting, but (laughs) we'd be all here all day. Uh, Did did we talk about Yuma enough? Because, um, uh, have we talked a lot about his backstory? I, uh, I I don't think we have. I don't, I don't think we have, no. So, so it's so it's uh, rather simple in a way. It's uh, uh, um, Yuma's a cocky uh, hothead, and he thought he was stronger th- uh, than he actually was. Then a father comes to save him and dies in the process, creating his weapon. But even with this basic scenario, Ashihara manages to put a creative spin that makes Yuma quite a tragic hero. So uh, from the start of the series, even though we don't know it yet, Yuma is slowly dying. And once he learns his uh, dad's old friend from Border is dead, he no longer has any life plans. So this forces Osama and Chika to personally involve themselves into finding a goal for him, and this is where the friendship ends up solidifying. And in a medium where the main character's goal often just ends up wanting to be the very best, uh, for which too often there doesn't have to be a reason, I don't have to tell you this is really unique. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, we probably can't talk about Yuma without mentioning Replica in some regard. So Replica, Replica, replica in addition to being uh, literally a great <laughs> exposition device, uh, uh, they're, all th- they're also a living memento of Yuma's dad and uh, his wish for his son to become self-sufficient. So his catchphrase is, uh, you're the one who decides that, Yuma, uh, which um, is his dad constantly reminding him to be responsible. And and uh, yeah, Hugo has so many so many uh, great life lessons. Like, uh, d- don't always listen to your parents. <laughs> <laughs> 
And yeah, maybe it's Osama's responsibility over people around him, despite his weakness, which um, allowed them to become such great friends with Yuma in such a short amount of time, and why Yuma is so loyal to his captain. So, yeah, the the theme of self-sufficiency uh, um, uh, has popped up a lot here, which is in itself weird since World Trigger also strikes me as a very collectivist manga, given how much emphasis is put on teamwork, which I really like. Yeah. You think finding the best middle ground between self-reliance and collectivism is going to be a point of discussion in the manga in the future? Hmm. That's a good question. I'm not really sure. Yeah, I don't know. It could be. That'd be really interesting. Yeah, I mean, there probably will be a point in which characters will have to decide, will we fight on our own or will we fight together as a team and i think that will be very interesting like in the setting of like a fight in the neighborhood like whether they have to fight as an individual like against someone or they they have to or they choose to fight as a team and i think i think that will be an interesting moment when it happens i i could see there maybe being a point where they get to after crater and maybe they're just they're just thrown into like the worst situation possible in where, you know, like they, they spend all this time uh, trying to figure out the best possible combination of all their abilities. But uh, maybe the cards just aren't in their favor and they, they like the conditions probably aren't right for them to be able to use their strategy and it just falls apart. Cause obviously, you know, the B rank wars compared to like actual battle is obviously a lot more, um, B-Rank Wars comparatively are a lot more organized, and obviously, you know, as we saw with the After Crater invasion, you know, these battles are a lot more chaotic and they're not as organized, so... Yeah, you don't have that setup time. I, I could see that maybe something that they have to face eventually. I think that's one interesting contrast uh, between, like, how Border fights and how, like, a lot of the neighbor teams fight is that... When we usually see like a neighbor character like fight in, in both invasions, they're like usually fighting uh, by themselves against like a team of border uh, agents. So like, oh, that's they a good fight point. as individuals against like a group of uh, like against like a team of characters. Yeah, and yeah. That might contribute into how like they lose. That so that's a really interesting thing to me that maybe the series will make more explicit later. Is like. You know, we've seen in Bone Invasions, like, ultimately, it's a group of characters against one neighbor character. And there are some exceptions to that. Uh, well, no, because even Yuma versus uh, Visa, like, he has Replica beside him giving him advice and stuff. So, like, even then you could say that's a team of characters. That's a group effort to take down uh, an enemy. I'd argue that some of Galapola um, work together a little bit. And the, the you know not not all of them entirely work yeah, by themselves. Yeah, yeah, you not not yeah. not all of them were alone. Yeah, uh, that's true. Uh, but also on the side of border, we have uh, Nina Mia who insists every member has to be able to earn points by themselves. So this this is going to be a uh, th- this is g- going to be a very interesting match between uh, Tamakoma, which is very team driven, g- given the uh, the fact that um, you have one main. A point earner and um, the others actually acting as support, and Ninomiya squad, uh, which which is just you know, well, we do have strategy as a team, but uh, basically, uh, we all earn points. We all can fight uh, individually as well. I think that's going to be a really interesting. Like, what's the word I use? Like compromise, maybe between like 
being able to f- be self-sufficient, but also be, you know, contribute to the team effort, you know, be work as part of the broader collective unit. Yeah, I wonder if that's going to come back and bite Tamakoma 2 later, because they spend so much time working on this, on, on, their, on this strategy as a team that requires them to work as a collective unit, but you know, indi- like individually, it I guess besides Yuma, it's sort of questionable how well they can work on their own. Maybe that's why Osamu is feeling so uneasy when Chapter One Sixty Four ends before the next match. Probably, yeah. Like I guess they wouldn't really be surprised by that, but uh, since they're constantly considering it uh, and they're constantly being reminded, by, like by uh, Nina Mia, as we mentioned before, or uh, Kikuchihara. Uh, by the way, uh, can I talk about Kazama Squad a little? Since uh, yeah, uh, I do. I do love them. Uh, so Kazama's peculiar respect for Osamu, despite the difference in the strengths, is very interesting. Especially since Osamu also ends up seeking his validation at every match. We hear uh, Kazama's thoughts on uh, on how Osamu did uh, in that match. And he always takes his advice despite being on different sides and border, which I do really like that uh, all the sides and border, yeah, they, they can be friends with one another, sure. And Kikuchihara is a giant prick, and he's great. <laughs> <laughs> he, he, he brings so much fun into the dynamic, and I uh, I do like his backstory a lot, um, about, about his side effect being um, enhanced hearing, uh, uh, so uh, everyone talks about uh, what what lame uh, what lame uh, side effect he has, and um, yeah, I, I can hear you guys. I, I can hear you. Uh, <laughs> uh, so, so it makes his behavior quite understandable, yeah, even it, if it was kind of repeated later on with uh, Kageura, didn't you think? A little bit, yeah. <laughs> not not They're similar, but not the same, totally yeah. the same. I I really like how Kikuchihara starts out and he's just like, look at this loser, Osamu, he's so lame, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and as like, you get later in the series and he's like, just like, well, maybe you're just like 90% lame, okay? <laughs> and then I think at one point they actually like talk to each other. Yeah, and uh, Tokieda uh, is just like, uh, wait, Kikuchihara talked to someone other than his uh, own squad. Yeah, he's like, that's rare. <laughs> and it's like, even after Hikuchihara uh, uh, tells Osama, well, you're kind of arrogant for thinking you can get better so fast. But like, it's still just the fact that he, he's taking the time to talk to Osama and is like being so honest with him that he even like it, it has respect enough for Osama to like do that when he usually doesn't even talk to people outside of Kazama Scott is super interesting. Yeah, yeah, I I really appreciate that. Uh, I really appreciated that. I I used to hate him. <laughs> I used like like I I'm only capable of hating one world trigger character at a time. <laughs> and, and right now it's Nina Mia. No, no, it's no? Uh, Katori now. Uh, oh. I love Katori. She's it was, first it was Kikuchiara, <laughs> then it was Nina Mia for a long time because that guy's an asshole. Um, but now it's uh uh. uh Katori. Yeah, Katori? Yeah, because I just, I really don't like her. I like the rest of her squad. I don't like her. <laughs> like, she had that backstory. I I love the dyna- dynamic. Yeah, I mean, she is 
he's really immature and really irresponsible. And it's like, especially after the backstory when you learn, like, how Hannah lost so much and, like, she, like, was like, oh, I- I'm going to join Border with you, Hannah. Well, I'll help you, you know, with your thing. But, like, she is now being so irresponsible. And even though she's so <laughs> talented, so she's just so lazy and she's just so apathetic. But I like Katori because I think she'll have an interesting character arc. I look forward to a character arc for her. But as she is now... Uh... As, as, for, as, for, as for you, Uiga, I, I hope he uh, he also um, he, he, he's also he's also quite uh, quite a terrible person. But I hope he eventually gets inspired by Osama and starts pulling his own in Tajikawa Squad. Yeah, I, I, I want to see Os- Osama beat him that those hundred times, <laughs> and Uiga's like, uh oh. <laughs> <laughs> No, yeah, is like, oh, uh, uh, I accept that my my student has overcome me, and uh, and, the, and then just then just Izumi decks him in the face uh, and, <laughs> and completely uh, undercuts the the uh, the pathos. And then he says, "Well, I'm gonna retire now. Maybe I'll become a high school tutor." <laughs> uh, so. Uh, one uh, one Kazama squad member uh, who I really think is overrated is uh, Utagawa, who is a good addition to the dynamic as he always has to apologize for he- his <laughs> teammates' brashness. Um, uh, 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 Kazama is just uh, unintentionally a dick. The Kikuchihara is intentionally a dick, and Utagawa <laughs> just has to say sorry to everyone. <laughs> he has to be twice twice uh, as nice as everybody else just to even them out. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I love the scene when he's talking to uh, Usami, and he's like, "Oh yeah, you know, you're looking really good." And, and Kikuchiara is like, "Yeah, you gained weight." <laughs> and he's just like, "Oh gosh." And then, and then uh, Kodera is like, "Oh, I, uh, I wish I could say something like that to her." <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh-huh. I, I guess totally unrelated, but two two characters that. I'm sort of indifferent to on their own are Yotaro and uh, Hiusei, but when combined together, they make like the most underrated, like buddy cop kind of dynamic ever. <laughs> yeah, like I, I don't like Yotaro very much on his own, but like you join him with Hughes and like, dang kids, that's an awesome team up. I really, I really just want to see more of them. Yotaro uh, walks a fine line b- between uh, between uh, very funny and annoying uh, to me, but but I uh, I do I do essentially like him for uh, him him just trying to to be as um, as stoic and badass as everyone else, uh, and, ju- uh, and uh, just uh, just trying to appear as a wise mentor, <laughs> um, especially to uh, especially to Husei. <laughs> yes. Oh, Husei is very talented. I, I, uh, I taught him uh, a lot of things. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's like, yeah, whatever. <laughs> I like how Yotaro is like the first person Husei develops like a begrudging respect towards. Yes. Or at least he, he, he actually seems to like hanging around. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I like how the hardest thing he has to deal with is anything involving him giving up his snacks. <laughs> <laughs> 
I also like the detail that uh, Yotaro's capybara, Rajimaru, doesn't actually respect him. <laughs> yes! <laughs> and isn't, isn't Rajimaru, like, a girl and everybody thinks it's a guy? And I think yeah. so, yeah. I can't say anything, you know? So, <laughs> I love Rajimaru. Yeah. Yeah, you know, let's say they're, all the mascot characters in the series are amazing. You've got Rajimaru, yes. who's amazing. You've got Replica, who's amazing. Kinita... Is amazing in its own way. And then there's Battle Cat. Oh god, evil kitty from Eftocrator. I love yeah, this guy. Yeah, who is uh, also uh, the, awesome. I, I, want, I want plushes of all of them, including Kinuta. Yes! <laughs> <laughs> and let's not forget Anadorad. Oh, Anadorad! Anadorad, oh. oh. Yes! Oh my gosh. The the Bilby guy from a forum, also known as Bell D. Lucas, made a lot of uh, memes about about the evil ki- uh, evil kitty from Aftokrator. <laughs> Unfortunately, now uh, ODAR is uh, is down. The forum is down, and uh, and we can't view them. But, but uh, I wish to, I, I wish I have uh, I had saved them now. That cat's up to no good. Always. The cat is the secret true main villain of World <laughs> He's the he's the leader of uh, Aftokrator. <laughs> I see. So I guess um, I don't I don't mean to be the downer here, but I guess uh, and I think we even got a like a question about this. But um, I think the thing is like I I I like World Trigger's characters enough, but I think the problem I have with most of the cast is is like I have a hard time. I don't know. I feel like a lot of the character designs don't stand out to me a lot, and I also have trouble forget. I also have trouble remembering a lot of like everybody's name. So like, I'll I'll fully admit sometimes you know you guys bring up certain characters, and like I I totally haven't been secretly like using the World Trigger Wiki <laughs> to try to try to remember which characters are which because I have such a hard time. I don't know these. Uh, like I like there are some characters I really like. Like I think early on, I really I was sort of attracted to Jin. I because again, I thought he at least as far as the beginning goes, I thought he had the most charisma, and I thought he had the most interesting power. But you know, as the series goes on, you know, I really like Osamu. I like Chika. Um, you know, Yuma isn't he? He isn't the most interesting character, but I, I do like him enough. Um, uh, who else? Um, I really liked um, Kagura. Um, I think his his character's really interesting and his power's really interesting. Uh, I'm trying to think. There's a, and that's the problem, too, is there are so many other characters that, like, I get mixed up with that it's just, I don't know. I have a I have a hard time keeping up with a lot of the characters, again, because, you know, some of them have kind of the same face or their designs just don't, just don't stand out to me too much, unfortunately. Um, so, I don't know. I, I like the cast enough, but... Yeah. I, I think it, it does make it difficult because, I mean, to, to tell characters apart and stuff, because you have all these Japanese characters that aren't, like, crazy, you know, like, we're also aliens and stuff, or we're in a fantasy, I mean, they, they are in a sci-fi world, but, I mean, it's so easy to see the the neighbors look fairly different, you know, like, they'll have different hairstyles and stuff, and... They have horns. The horns, you know, and, you know, Yuma has fluffy white hair, and... You know, so, yeah, I, I hear that. I mean, there's not a ton of super uniqueness to the character designs. Yeah, uh, I'm actually one of those people who don't mind the same face designs 
it's a stylistic choice that I don't mind in South Park, so uh, why should I mind it here, really? <laughs> uh, and in, in a way, it makes the personality of them stand out all the more to me. Hmm, that's interesting. Yeah, I don't think it's necessarily, like, a bad thing, but I do think it does make it a little harder to not so much tell people apart, but their appearance isn't super memorable. Like, if you were to put my beloved baby brother, Osamu, you know, alongside, you know, ten other people with black hair and glasses, you know, he's not really going to stand out. I feel I could pick Osamu out in that lineup, but I think, yeah, in general, it's just... It's hard because there are a lot of characters that do look similar enough to each other. There aren't designs that are like completely like lookalikes, but like, you know, when I was first reading Road Trigger week to week, you know, I did get Kazama and Miwa confused sometimes. Exclusively because they're characters that have, you know, black hair and stuff. So it's like, so, you know, just that was could be trouble sometimes because there are so many characters and there is some overlap in their designs and so because there are so many characters because they're not a lot of characters will go a long time without being in the series so if you're like reading it week to week you might go months without seeing a character and so when they come back you're like oh wait who is this again but like all the characters have distinct personalities and i do think most of them are quite interesting i just it's just very hard like when you're reading it like on a week-to-week basis to remember all of them and keep track of all of them i will give you that in the case of Jin and arashiyama who have the the same hairstyle and body type and (laughs) really really everything (laughs) except for hair color and i actually got arashiyama and tachikawa confused sometimes uh, when i was reading it week to week before but you know this huh. this reread really helps like really helped me like uh appreciate like the all the nuances and differences between characters so now coming out of it like i feel i have a firmer grasp of who each character is even some of the less important ones but like definitely week to week there was just times where like oh how how many a rank characters are there which which squad is this again uh, so there is just tr- there is trouble with that sometimes, just because of like the sheer amount of characters, and it's not it's it's usually just kind of a uh, the case in a series that has a lot of characters like this. Like even with One Piece or you know Bleach, you know there are there are times where I'm like, what wait, who is this again? I I forget. Uh, but it is sometimes uh harder with world trigger because there are s- some similar face characters but i don't i don't think that there are any like truly like look-alike designs it, it, compared to like maybe oda like it doesn't well even no with, with oda there are a lot of uh kind of characters with similar body types but you know there are also well, female really characters extreme... yeah. especially of one type yeah yeah but there are yeah, but but that series, there's also so many more extreme character designs that it, there's so much more contrast. But with World Trigger, you know, you have a lot of more normal looking, you know, human dudes. It's it's not like another series where you have like really st- distinctly and maybe st- strangely designed characters like 
uh, with Bleach, you'll have you. There was a lot of those, and like with Naruto, even there was a lot of characters that had like these weird things. Uh, like the, like Gara has these uh, that had those eyeshadows and like that backpack, or like Orochimaru has this pale skin and like this purple eyeliner thing. So it's like there aren't a lot of characters that have extreme looks like that in World Trigger. Yeah, I don't know that that that's that's the thing I feel kind of weird about World Trigger is that I appreciate how clean Ashihara's art is. But I also feel like sometimes, you know, especially with his character designs, that's that's sort of a detriment, but that's just my opinion. I will criticize one thing in Ashihara's art. He can't draw crying, <laughs> unfortunately. <laughs> Do you remember the, uh, uh, what was his name? Uh, the Mur- Murakami? Yeah, m- m- the Murakami flashback. I, I use those pictures of him crying. When I'm upset at one of my editors, the, 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 the current the current world trigger editor Marlene finds it super creepy. So whenever uh, we're having an argument over something or she upsets me, I sent her uh, one of those pictures, and she's just like, "Oh God, stop it!" Ew. Oh, That's God. great. <laughs> it, it, it's just a couple of it's just a couple of single uh, giant tears that 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 are the size of his eyes. They're um, like the Ghibli uh, tears. Yeah, you know they're just like ridiculously huge, uh, and it's so so strangely uh, so strangely stoic at the same time. So it's um, they are big tears, but it's not like this big ugly One Piece cry. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I could uh, I could guess the contrast, but between uh, those things could be creepy. But are there any other characters we want to talk about, or do we want to? Moving to kind of just wrapping up with uh, our feelings on the uh, fandom of World Trigger or speculating where the series will go and then afterwards Q&As. Well, I uh, I could think of one more character, Annalise's baby boy. My baby boy! My perfect brother. We were going to talk about why Osamu uh, Mikimo is the best. I I think Chika is, uh, is the best character. Uh, in a world trigger, but uh, to be fair, o- Osamu plays into the character type I really like, so I'm really fond of him too. Uh, he's he's the underdog who frequently plays a straight man to other characters, and while I like him a lot, it's clear to me that Osamu is the real main character of the series. He's the crux. He's the crux of most of the emotional arcs in World Trigger. It's his decisions that p- push the story forward the most. It's his relationships that most of the cast is built around. And it's his eyes through which we discover Border. Yes. Yeah, Oshihara Sensei has said there there are four main characters. It's Osamu, Yuma, Chika, and Jin. But yeah, for all the reasons that you stated, Osamu's the main, main character. The first chapter is named after him. Yes. That's true, that's true. The the first volume uh, is uh, has the cover with Yuma, but uh, yeah, Yuma is the p- poster boy. Osamu is the main character. Yes, he's very mm-hmm. much the poster boy. There's a handful of Osamu moments I I, I want to call into attention. That I I love this boy. Anybody who's talked to me for five minutes knows I love this boy. <laughs> he's my favorite character ever. Um, and he's he's weak, and it makes him interesting. He's not. He wants to get strong, but as we've discussed earlier, if he can't get strong, he wants to be able to help others be strong. So he's he's perfectly fine with being a support 
for other characters. And I really appreciate that. I really appreciate that we've got a character that's not the strongest, not trying to be the strongest, but he's using his head as his primary weapon. He's using his tactics. But there are a couple moments, like in volume one, the school is invaded by, uh, I think, two Marmots. And Osamu tries to fight them off so everybody can evacuate. And he's very weak. He can't do it. So he gets, he bails out. And Yuma takes his, his uh, trigger so Yuma won't be uh, detected using his own trigger. And Osama's like, no, you can't use that. You can't use that. You can't use that. And the first time I read it, you know, you first see that, you're like, don't be a dick. Let him use your trigger. <laughs> but he goes on and, you know, Yuma's doing all these crazy things. And he says, you can't use that because it's only for training. It's not strong enough for you. Yeah. And I think that moment I was like, this character is very interesting. He's not, don't use that because it's mine. Don't use that because you're not a border member. Don't, you know, it's, that's a weak weapon. Don't, you know, get yourself in danger by using, you know, a wooden sword. And so I think that was really cool. Um, the, another moment when, you know, he really, really endeared myself. Uh, we talked about this earlier, but when he was fighting with Kazuma, and he just, he's getting beat and he's getting beat and he's getting beat. And then he finds out that Jin has basically given away Fujin for their team, for their squad to be able to be formed. And he just asks, you know, can I please ask for one more round? And it's just, you know, it, it, it's that moment that shows his conviction and like, okay, if other people are sacrificing, I, I got to do more. And he actually manages to pull a draw with his Regus uh, plus uh, super super slow asteroid tactics, which is great. It, it sets up his most interesting character trait, thinking it outside the box um, with his limited resources in order to make up for his weakness. Yeah. He actually reminds me of myself when I made a football team with a bunch of friends when we were kids. I've always been awful at sports. I was incredibly weak. I couldn't even learn to kick the ball properly. Uh, but I really wanted to make myself useful to, to the team. So what did I do? I tried to position myself in a way so that I would annoy the enemy players the most. <laughs> <laughs> That's yeah. excellent. Yeah, even That's if I couldn't good. take uh, away the ball myself. Which is more or less what Osama does in his fights against uh, Suwa and Nasu. Yeah, he positioned himself where he would like put pressure on Nasu to, you know, limit her movements. Even though like he, you know, himself could not really do anything. He he knew how to position himself to create psychological pressure for his enemies. And I like how Osama was able to use tactics like that, willing to think outside the box to, to go, okay. I can't, you know, beat an enemy head on. I can't do a, a whole lot by myself. But what can I do to help my teammates score these points or help, you know, my team turn the tide of this battle? And I really appreciate that uh, mindset he has. I really appreciate Osamu as a protagonist because, like as we mentioned before, his goal is not to be the best. His goal is to help his his uh, team and the people around him the best he can and he's always concerned about the safety and the well-being of others often you know at the detriment of himself sometimes or like willing to take the cost in order to help his teammates but he's also always thinking about ways to improve himself so that he can 
not just for his own benefit, but for the benefit of the group, for the benefit of everyone. And I really like that selflessness of his. And I also just like that ability that he's able to think about, you know, what's not best for me, but also always what's best for the team. What I also love about him is that he uh, also keeps getting credit uh, uh, at first for, for what his allies do. But essentially, either he does that or those uh, things go to waste. So he has no choice but to accept. Uh, but he still feeds, uh, feels guilty about it, which which makes for an in- interesting emotional conflict. I like when he's... Uh, towards the beginning of the series, He he's helping out... Um, Oh, I forget the name of the neighbor, but a big bomber type neighbor comes, and Kitora Ilga. does most of the work. Yes, and Kitora does most of the work, you know, taking it out. And you know, Osama's just helping people evacuate. And they're like, "Oh, thanks, you saved us, you saved us." And Kitora's like, <sighs> and he's like, "No, look, she did it. Wow, she's so great." And she's just like, "I want to be so angry at him, and she's such a loser, but." <laughs> yeah, Asama is just so selfless. Like he, his goal really is just to help the people around him, and he's he, he's not even comfortable taking credit for anything. It's like he just wants to help. Though he does acknowledge that he has selfish reasons, even if he's probably too hard on himself in that regard. So while he wants to help people, he does it so that he doesn't hate himself for not doing so and running away. So. So that's also an interesting part of his character. Everything is well accumulated in his, uh, I think it's volume 10 speech, his whole, like, I'm not a hero. But, you know, like, basically, I, yeah, I, I, I'd hate myself if I just turned my back. So I've got to do what I've got to do. I've got to do what I can. And that's why he's such a good boy. He is a sucker for those in need. And I just love that he earns the respect of all the people around him just because... He just has this, you know, he's so hardworking and he's he's so selfless and he's always working to do the best for uh, the people around him. Because, like, we have that scene where, where uh, his mom is telling him all the people who visited him in the hospital. And, this, and then she's like, you know, it's interesting. All these people visited you in the hospital. Some people were like saying, oh, I'm sorry you got hurt and stuff. But no one said you should quit border. No one ever said anything like that. So, and that's just such a powerful moment because, you know, Osamu thinks of himself as weak and he doesn't, you know, really appreciate like just how much his efforts really do matter and just how much he really is of help. But the people around him do recognize that. So it's just such a powerful moment that, yes, Osamu has a place in border. He has a very important role. He might never be like an ace attacker or anything, but the role he plays in border is incredibly valuable and the people there are very glad to have him around. I love his long road to self-improvement, how long it takes, and uh, just how he has to get all the help from his A-rank friends and Kitora. Uh, the, the spider tactics are just amazing and make the battle against Kakizaki and Katori probably my favorite rank battle so far. Uh, Osama is great, guys. Yes. He's so good. <laughs> Please love him. Join the fan club. Be number one. Be the number 100. <laughs> Be number 100. <laughs> 
I mean, he, I think he's definitely a very he's he's probably a very underrated character as far as like just shonen protagonists go. Well, at least among World Trigger fans, he's well appreciated because he's been number one in both character polls. Which, which that really that really surprises me, honestly. Not 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 that I don't think he deserves it, but I totally would have expected Yuma to be number one and Osavu number two. So that kind of caught me off guard, honestly. So with with fan goods, uh, one of my friends the other day ish, I guess. Uh, was explaining like, oh, wh- what is your boy? Is he a hundred yen boy? Is he a thousand yen boy? In relation to how much do their goods sell for at the resale shop? <laughs> and I was like, oh, that's a very interesting way. And it's it's an interesting way to see how popular a character is. And Osama's about a 300, 400 yen boy. Whereas hmm. Kazuma and Izumi and uh, Tachikawa are more the thousand yen boys. So yeah. I always expect to see them higher than they rank. So it's very interesting to me to see Osamu, my 400 yen boy, you know, get <laughs> get number one twice where he deserves to be forever. I, I will say this. Osamu kind of just makes me want more just normal jump protagonists, you know, ones that aren't just like super powerful and just win all the time. And yeah. I think that's what I think that's why even though he has a superpower, I, I still... I, I rally behind Midoriya until until death because I think he's not only is he just such a great character, but you know, yeah, he has he has powers and I I rant on on Twitter about this the other day. But you know, he has powers, but like he still has a long way to go before he I mean he's also shown a lot of improvement in his series, but I still think he has a long way to go before he becomes like, you know, the number one hero or whatever, because we know he's going to be the number one, gonna he's going to be the best. Like he said so in the first chapter, so we know it's coming. But like the the journey he takes to become number one is really interesting. You want to see him grow just like with Osamu. I, I hope that be, kind of becomes a trend where we just see more characters like that. But yeah, Osamu is the best. And that is our, this is our thesis as to why. <laughs> Um, now I'm actually really interested in hearing about the, the world trigger fandom because, you know, as somebody who is a lot more casual out of the four of us here, I'm, I, I haven't really interacted with a lot of the world trigger fandom. Like I, I know people who really, really love it, but I mean, I, I, I hate to admit that I've never, I've never seen an episode of like, you know, the world trigger abridged series. And I, I feel like I really should check it out. And, you know, I'm, I'm aware of the Osamu fan club and, and all that kind of stuff. But I, I honestly didn't realize World Trigger had such a passionate fan base. It's, it's pretty impressive. Are, are you part of the, uh, part of the Discord server, uh, border headquarters uh, that's, uh, that's, um, Annalise made? Hmm. <laughs> okay. That I'm never on. <laughs> <laughs> oh. <laughs> Administration has left the building. I am very bad at keeping on top of things on on every Discord channel I'm on. Yeah, the um, same here. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Border Headquarters. I love you so much. I just, I'm not worthy. <laughs> <laughs> but the fandom for this series has been amazing. There's a rule I've heard. It's called the 1% rule, where 1% of your fandom's just going to be the worst. It'll be super toxic. And of course, the bigger your fandom is, like, 
the more toxic people will be, you know, in mm, it. Yep. I don't think I've ever seen anybody toxic at all in World Trigger. And we're not a huge fandom. I mean, I'm not going to lie. We're not huge. But everybody that I've talked to has so much love for this series. I mean, you know, look at all the fan works that are still coming out. The, the series has been on hiatus for like 18 months. There's still, um, there's a 60-minute World Trigger drawing challenge on uh, Twitter. I, I don't know how often they do it. I think it's maybe... I'm just throwing this out there. I think it's at least twice a week and they'll give oh, you a topic cool. and you have 60 nice. minutes to draw it. And it's it's really cool to see, you know, people still celebrate characters' birthdays. Osama is, is on Friday, Friday the <laughs> May 25th. Um, oh, yeah. this is when we're planning to have this episode out, I think. So. Yeah, happy birthday, Osama! <laughs> That's going to be Hey, we, we totally... We totally planned that all along. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, then, then you know, there's, uh, we've got our club, the, uh, you know, unofficial Osamu fan club. Um, there's, I don't know if they're still active, but for a little while at least, there's a Tokieda fan club in Japan. Um, wow. There are still doujinshi events in Japan. I think the ne- I think there's one coming up that's a Osamu-based one. Uh, and then there's even a restaurant a curry restaurant in Akihabara where the owner or manager or something loves World Trigger. So you go in and there's World Trigger stuff all over the walls. They they make eggplant curry. Oh, <laughs> and wow. their little their picture for it is is the mascot of the uh restaurant uh but it has goggles. So it's a clear <laughs> reference to oh, the wow. squad. Oh, man, so, I gotta visit that's education. So you, it's so it's so good. Uh, that guy is actually a member of the Osama fan club. Uh, <laughs> join today. You can be like, uh, I think it's a, a Aliba Curry in Akihabara. Um, mm. But wow. yeah, I, I, if you do go to Japan, I totally recommend going there. It's awesome. Yeah, even Ashiara Sensei has done a, a drawing of Ikoma for the restaurant. Wow. But I mean, nice. it, it's just the, the love. It's it's just so strong still. And it's, I don't know. I mean, I could say it's because the series, it's so good and it's memorable. And there's just so many good characters that that's why people will stand by it for, you know, a long time. But I really don't know. I'm happy that it's still got a big fandom. Well, it's still got a sizable fandom. A passionate, a passionate, passionate. yes, that's, that's appropriate. A passionate fandom. I love you guys. I wish I wish I could uh, participate in the fandom more honestly because um I've I've been so busy that, that um I've been quite out of the loop for a while now. I've um I've only uh, just uh, you know uh, just just doing the abridged series and um and participating uh, and uh, sometimes just looking over the discussion on ODR which uh, well Rest in peace, but but yeah, uh, I'm I'm happy that uh, I'm happy that um, well, Trigger is, um, is still has an active fandom, and um, I'm, I might actually uh, want to participate in um, in that uh, challenge you mentioned sometime, maybe. Yeah, Thank you. It's fun. Thanks, fandom. Stay strong. Someday, hopefully, maybe, World Trigger will come back. I I do want to say. Uh, Last December, I was at Jump Festa, and Yuma was on 
all the boards that had all the main characters. So don't lose hope. Shueisha hasn't lost hope. Hmm. Well, that, that's that's good to hear, at least. That makes me very happy to hear. And in case you were interested in uh, in Well Triggered in the uh, Brit series, uh, rec- recently uh, we managed to uh, win against um, against a mighty opponent the the copyright claims. So. Um, oh. <laughs> uh, so the, uh, they they both episodes are viewable to the uh, to the public right now, and uh, yeah, awesome. Wait, that's good. I hope we can um, we can make the uh, the third episode as soon as possible. We should remember to put links to those in the show notes for the episode. Definitely. You know, well, triggered started as uh, as very much a group initiative. The previous leader of the project, um, MAS eight seven zero five, I think I think um, that was uh, that was his name, organized basically um, everyone on the forum around the um, the uh, hashtag Tiba contest from uh, Team Four Star, and everyone kind of joined in um, into the brainstorming. It was around the time. Uh, it was around the time. Uh, that uh, we had the uh, Katori squad um, match, so so, uh, so it it was around the chapter that uh, that she said, "What do you think? You are some kind of main characters," <laughs> and, and and that's that's kind of where where the where the joke and the kind of what I try to spin into the, into the theme of um, everyone's getting um, everyone's getting uh, so meta is because um, is because the media around us shape um, shape our motivations so uh, then a kind of a discussion um, was spun into uh, who is the the main character of uh, of World Trigger uh, actually? And uh, some some said, oh uh, oh yeah, maybe um, maybe it's uh, maybe it's Yuma. And uh, some said maybe it's Osama. And yeah, uh, that's kind of where the joke came from. Then it uh, then it was a re very much appropriately appropriately to World Trigger very much a community project. And uh, now now it's kind of in in the hands of um, me and Grail. And uh, and Casta recently, so yeah. Awesome. So we got the origins of the world triggered a bridge series here too. We got two origin stories in one episode. Go check it out. That's a lot of origin stories. Mm-hmm. And a lot of shameless plugs. <laughs> <laughs> but I've always been impressed by how passionate the World Trigger fandom is, but I've never been surprised because World Trigger is such a unique a series in Shonen Jump in terms of how it presents itself as a battle series, in terms of what kind of protagonist Osamu is, in that unlike other Shonen Jump protagonists, he's not aiming to be the best himself. He's just aiming to help the most people around him and bettering himself to do that and how unique that is. And so I think there are just all these great qualities, these great unique qualities to World Trigger that invite such a passionate fandom for it. And there's also so much intriguing lore elements to the series, so much intriguing world building that sparks people's imagination to want to see where the story is going and think about the story and get invested in it on a deeper level as well. So... I think World Trigger ha- is just a really unique series, and I really enjoy it. I myself also 
want to participate in the fandom more, and I'm incredibly happy that it's continued to be strong, even in the year-and-a-half hiatus World Trigger has taken. And I'm hoping, uh, just like how Shueisha seems to have faith that uh, World Trigger will return, I hope for that as well. And that is going to be about it for the show today. Uh, we want to thank you guys for listening to this episode of the podcast. Though you may be wondering, hey, uh, what about the Q&As that Sid said you guys were going to get to? Well, fear not, uh, because uh, you are going to be hearing those on the next episode of Manga Mavericks. Though you also may be saying to yourself, oh, I got to wait two weeks to, to hear you guys answer my questions. Well, that's not fair. Well, you could stop complaining, listener I just made up that doesn't exist. You are going to be getting the next episode of Manga Mavericks early. Uh, that's right. Uh, after this episode has been released, uh, we are going to put up the next episode featuring answers to all your uh, World Trigger questions uh, this coming Friday. So uh, look forward to that. Um, you know, it's... it's an, Basically, it's going to be like the next, I want to say, like 40 minutes to an hour left of the discussion we had here today on this episode. So, you know, I figured it could probably fill out its own mini episode or something. So why not? Uh, it won't take as long to edit. So there's no need to make you guys wait another two weeks for the next episode. Uh, uh, basically, uh, this again, this next coming Friday... Uh, we will be dedicating the next episode of Manga Mavericks to answering all your World Trigger questions. And then uh, we'll basically uh, come up with a, a regular episode the next week. So um, no no week break this time. You are getting an episode in the next week. So yeah, uh, for all you guys who really like listening to our content, uh, that should be good news for you. Um, apologies that uh, you'll, be, you'll have to wait a little longer for us to answer your questions, but... This discussion already went on for so long, and Sid and I kind of figured, hey, maybe we should kind of split this episode down somewhere. And uh, and yeah, I, I figured, we figured, I should say, that uh, it'd probably be for the best. Uh, we did not forget your Q&As. Those are coming, uh, just not for another week or so. So yeah, those are coming. But uh, for now, we're going to close off the show, and I'm, I'm, I'm going to do that by extending a special thanks to both Annalisa Chrisman and uh, Wensley Dale Cheddar for coming on the show today. Annalisa Chrisman being the letterer of World Trigger uh, for Viz Media and Weekly Show to Jump, and is also the official leader of the, I guess, unofficial uh, Osamu fan club, of which, uh, by the time you're listening to this, I am... Uh, I am officially uh, member 100. I took the initiative uh, in the time between the recording and and uh, release of this episode. So, yep, didn't want to give it away until I officially got my card. But I, I might as well just say it. I'm, I'm, I'm member 100 and it's pretty cool. Um, I can't wait to get my card in the mail. I'm sure I'll tweet that out or something. Uh, so thank you, Annalise, for letting me be a part of, of your wonderful fan club, uh, Osamu Forever and all that jazz. And again, a special thanks to Wensley Dale Cheddar for coming on the show. He is not only the director, but also the voice of Osamu in the World Trigger Bridge series known as World Triggered. And uh, you can find that at a YouTube near you. Uh, I believe uh, he has two episodes up uh, and is in the middle of, of editing the third episode as we speak, um, at least as far as I can remember. Um, so, yeah, uh, definitely go check that out if you're interested. 
Um, and uh, yeah, basically just go check out all the other World Trigger fan community projects and whatnot that I'm sure Sid will have linked in the description uh, for this episode on the website and whatnot. Um, uh, definitely go just just go go be a part of the fandom. It, it's it's fun. The World Trigger fandom is a lot more passionate and a lot more fun than I originally thought it was. Um, so yeah, just, um, I guess, yeah, again, just special thanks to the both of them for coming on the show. And as where you can find them on the internet, uh, you can find Annalisa on Twitter at Kaito Ace. That's K-A-I-T-O-U underscore Ace. And, uh, as well as, uh, Wensleydale Cheddar on Twitter at Wensleydale Cheddar. So, uh, yeah, go follow both of them and, uh, check out their, uh, check out their stuff and, uh, you know, engage with them. They're both really cool people. Um, and uh, I guess, you know, as far as Sid goes, uh, just just a big thank you for Sid for always recording these uh, recording these podcasts with me. I really do enjoy talking with him, especially on things that I know he really enjoys. So um, go follow Sid on Twitter at Lum Ramayasha uh, and uh, just uh, just just tell him hi. I don't know. Send him a tweet. Tell him that you really like, uh, tell him that you really like listening to him on this show and whatnot. And, uh, yeah, just tell him how much you love World Trigger. I'm sure he'll talk to you about it in a heartbeat. And, uh, let's see. You can also follow me on Twitter at SniperKing323. Uh, I do a shit ton of manga threads, uh, in preparation for a bunch of episodes of the podcast coming down the pipeline for this year. Um, I won't go over all of them, but I, I gotta make a pinned tweet or something featuring all of those at some point. I really should get around to doing that. But uh, as for my other projects, obviously there's Life Lessons, the Gintama Manga Cast, uh, which you can find at gintalifelessons.wordpress.com. And you can also find uh, One Podcast Prevails at onepodcastprevails.com. But as for the Manga Mavericks podcast in particular, uh, you can find all of our episodes of the podcast on all-comic.com. That's where we post every episode first. You can also follow us on facebook.com slash all.comic or on twitter.com slash allcomic underscore. Uh, but if you want to keep up to date with the latest happenings for uh, on Manga Mavericks uh, specifically, uh, you want to follow us on Twitter at manga underscore Mavericks for all the latest updates on the podcast, as well as mangamavericks.tumblr.com. And you can also follow us on our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash manga Mavericks. And uh, check out all of our latest snippets of the podcast or whatnot. If you don't feel like listening to four-hour-long podcast, I kind of don't blame you. Um, if you want to uh, email us anything about the podcast, uh, hey, uh, email us your World Trigger questions. And uh, if, if you still haven't already, at mangamavericks at gmail.com. Uh, just email us anything and we'll read it on the show. Um, but the most important thing, guys is that you subscribe, rate, and review us on iTunes uh, or on Apple Podcasts. I keep forgetting that's what they're called now. Um, so yeah, um, go ahead and do all that. Again, uh, we will be leaving links to a bunch of different World Trigger fan community things uh, in the description below for you to check out. Go join the Osamu Fan Club. Go check out World Triggered. Uh, I know we mentioned a bunch of other things, but I don't remember them off the top of my head. And be sure to stay tuned for next episode as we again answer all of your World Trigger questions on episode 49. Bye, guys. Bye.